welcome you. This yes? is hell. I see. We're back with an all-new show, and this week we're talking about the unfulfilled promise of abolition that was made to former slaves and their descendants following the end of the Civil War. And then we're off to Okinawa to get a better understanding of U.S.-Japanese relations through the lens of U.S. military bases and sexual violence and murder committed by... U.S. service members and base workers, and that's only in the first two hours of this week's show. Then we'll have a discussion where we will consider what it would mean to thread socialism to feminism and then thread abolitionism to socialist feminism. Yeah, I don't know what it means either, but it sure sounds good, so we'll try to figure that out. And our final guest on this week's show will tell us about the cruel, painful, and degrading use of force feeding in U.S. prisons, which is unprecedented in the world. Of course, Jeff Dorchin will have a moment of truth, which I'll tell you about in a moment. And during my monologue after throwing my back out last week, last week making me unable to do the show, I had a rear window weekend where I observed and physically felt the worst humanity has to offer. Or at least that's what it looked like from the view of my window. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is hell. All four hours of this week's This Is Hell were recorded live this week, streaming exclusively for our subscribers on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell in our studio above a bar, a studio which was provided by the generous support of our Patreon patrons. So if you are listening to the live stream... The only way you can do that is by being a Patreon patron. Everybody else is going to listen to the tape-delayed live recording of this week's show on Saturday morning. So if you are a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com this uh, slash this is hell, you're listening to our live stream. If you're hearing us on Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM on Saturday morning, you are listening to the world broadcast premiere of this week's live recording of This Is Hell. Segments of this week's show are also rebroadcast every week on the Southside's Lumpen Radio and on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho. But if it wasn't for our incredibly supportive listeners on Patreon, we would be doing yet another Best Of show because this weekend, for the first time since 1996, since before This Is Hell ever aired, I'm going to celebrate midsummer with my girly and the Swedish side of her family. And I could never have done that, actually start reclaiming my family and social life, decimated by 23 years of working on weekends without all our Patreon patrons backing. And I cannot thank our subscribers enough, so let me do a little catching up. Thank you, 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 thank you. This weekend, I will be experiencing an actual weekend, and I could not be happier. So thanks again to everyone who subscribes at patreon.com slash thisishell. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Follow us on Twitter at thisishellradio and on Instagram at thisishell. During this week's hell, we actively erase the uncomfortable and depressing history of slavery. By doing so, we ignore and dismiss the pain, the misery, the entire experience of lifelong slavery that is passed on to your children in the chattel system. And when the ugly and horrific story of history, or of, <laughs> history of 
Slavery is erased, ignored, and dismissed. The need for reconciliation is diminished, which means no reparations for all the promises of freedom that were given to former slaves, only to be broken by white supremacy. In the first hour of this week's show, we'll talk to law, racial justice, and African-American history scholar Catherine Frank, author of Repair, Redeeming the Promise of Abolition. Following our discussion on how the United States refuses to come to terms with the very worst part of its history, the U.S. is the only nation with a global network of military bases. The only one. The U.S. has service members on permanent bases in 36 countries around the globe. No other country has more than 12 foreign bases. And that country isn't Russia or China but France. And when a U.S. military base is in-country, U.S. culture comes with it, for better and worse. Unfortunately, some of the worst is the very worst of U.S. culture, including racism and segregation, which has manifested itself in rape and murder of locals by service members on the Japanese island of Okinawa. We'll learn about the tragic death of Rina Shimabukuru and what that tragedy says about U.S.-Japanese relations. Japan-Okinawa relations, and the global U.S. military base system when we speak with award-winning writer Akemi Johnson, author of Night in the American Village, Women in the Shadow of the U.S. Military Bases in Okinawa. In the third and fourth hours of this week's Hell, we'll learn all about abolitionist socialist feminism with activist, political scientist, and writer Zilla Eisenstein. And I'll tell you more about that conversation in a little bit. And we'll also talk to reporter Aviva Stahl about her new investigation, Force Feeding is Cruel, Painful, and Degrading, and American Prisons Won't Stop. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Alex, what's new by you? Uh, but if we get a better mic for me to talk into, then you're going to hear the cat screaming in the background. Oh, sweet. That'll be awesome. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is oh, is the dirty waffle. I know. I don't like dirty in front of anything, I think. Uh, according to a story headlined, a guide to infrequently offered or off-the-menu local dishes. That that headline really appeals to me. Yeah. At Seaville.com, a website covering everything Charlottesville, Virginia, reporter Meg Irvin said, uh, certain dishes and meals around town are elusive, but with a little planning and some insider info, you can indulge in these delicious off-the-radar items from a New England staple to a belly-filling hangover cure. Most regulars at Ace Biscuit and Barbecue <laughs> know about the chicken and waffles, the sausage gravy, and the fried green tomatoes. The dirty waffle, though, is another story. Not listed on the regular menu. The only way to know about it is well to know about it. The dish adds sausage, gravy, pimento cheese, and pickles <laughs> to the standard chicken and waffles. Uh, Andrew Autry, the Ace Biscuit manager, who's also known as Wolf, that's pretty cool, is noted saying, there's a lot happening with the dirty waffle. <laughs> the grossest sentence I've ever read on the radio. It's a se best secret hangover cure. So that makes this week's hangover cure, courtesy of Wolf, uh, the dirty waffle at Ace Biscuit and Barbecue in Charlottesville, Virginia. Ugh. I asked my girlfriend for a dirty waffle for Christmas, and I didn't get it. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Us Wrong. This is Hell. I am your host for This is Hell, Chuck Mertz. And currently my pants are unzipped, but not for a good reason, because I'm sitting on ice. 
Have you ever seen that Alfred Hitchcock movie Rear Window with Jimmy Stewart? In the movie, Stewart's character has a broken leg and is temporarily confined to a wheelchair. Stewart's character grows increasingly bored and starts entertaining himself by watching the comings and goings of a neighbor. Stewart grows suspicious of his neighbor's activity, at times even using binoculars so he can more clearly see what his suspect is up to. Stewart starts creating a narrative to explain his neighbor's actions, which makes Stewart's character increasingly paranoid. Well, I had a rear window moment this weekend, and lots of Americans are having them on a daily basis as we observe our nation of sociopaths. I threw my back out again three times in three years, all because of an injury I sustained working for the state of Michigan when I was younger. I worked with a crew that physically consolidated schools, emptying and stripping them of nearly any value as the local board of education was selling off schools while consolidating students as well, transferring them all into what suddenly were far more crowded schools with greater student-to-teacher ratios. Uh, It was the early 80s and the beginning of the end of public investment in our shared infrastructure. Municipalities, desperate for revenue, lost by tax cuts, had begun to cannibalize themselves, giving away what the public had paid for at pennies on the dollar, all sold to politically connected developers. Yep, my back was blown out by neoliberalism and the advent of Reaganism. So yes, I do have a bias when it comes to my worldview, and I am biased against sociopaths who make decisions that end up throwing out my back, and as sociopaths, they just don't care. They wouldn't care if you told them before they made the decision that does physical harm, and they wouldn't care if you told them what their decision led to after the fact. That's what a sociopath is, as near as I can figure, someone who has no conscience, and is antisocial to the point of lacking all compassion, sympathy, empathy, any feelings at all toward their neighbors, their community, their fellow human beings. So I blew my back out because not enough people... What do you got there? Yeah, no for you. Uh, okay. Uh, so I blew my back out because not enough people care about their fellow citizens here in the U.S. They'd rather save a few bucks in taxes than use the power of that money to work together on an accessible and affordable, effective and efficient health care system. Next time you hear somebody complain about how expensive their last doctor's visit or medical procedure or prescription medicine cost, tell them, yeah, you're right, it does suck how much everything costs, but hey, with our taxes lower than they used to be, you can afford it, right? They'll say no. Then ask, what if you didn't pay any taxes at all? Could you afford your health care then? Who knows how they'll respond, but they may actually realize that no matter how much you individually save in taxes... You'd save a lot more if collectively you pooled your money with everyone else and made the health care system accessible and affordable. All these poor, wrong-headed, and stupid decisions made to only benefit the most wealthy sociopaths added up mean that for nearly four days I could not sit up without being in unbearable pain, which got worse to the point I could not sit up at all. Luckily, my girlie came down with a fever from getting a shingles vaccination, which is a typical reaction, apparently, but who knew? My girlie didn't until Friday morning when her temperature was nearing 100 and she called her doctor's office and they told her it was a normal reaction. But without her home, I would have never gotten out of bed because I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't go from a laying to sitting position or or from sitting to standing or walking in any way without her fevered assistance. Despite being sick, my girlie worked online all day while waiting on me 
getting ice packs, heating pads, ibuprofen, naproxen, stop pain, icy hot, Bengay, baclofen, a pulsating showerhead, my, my bong, my beers, anything to help me alleviate my grimacing pain, which only subsided once I fell unconscious from prescription drugs, alcohol, weed, and rotating heating and freezing pads. Unfortunately, I could not work from home because I could not sit up. All I could do was lay down, and with my vision, laptops and phones don't work. To get me in a position where I can read, write, and type means to be awkwardly contorted because, yeah, they don't make electronic devices or much of anything for people with low vision like myself. Ergonomics are for the abled to be more comfortable, not for the disabled to actually be abled. That's why I'm pretty sure I'm evolving with those bone spikes growing in my neck. Yeah, that's happening, and maybe... We're evolving because we spend so much time looking at our devices. Our our necks are bent to see our screens, and we're growing new bones to adapt to that posture perverted by the innovations of the market, which, like everything sociopathic in our society, could not care less about forcing evolution upon us. Everything is painful when you throw out your back. When I could finally walk in pain, which was far better than not being able to walk at all, I could finally go get my own water without having my girly getting it for me. But again, as our society is sociopathic and we don't care about working together to have clean drinking water, here in Chicago, 80% of homes are getting drinking water that has above recommended levels of lead in it. We have to each individually purchase our own water purification system. My girlie and I are broke, so we try to do everything the cheapest possible way, which means we have one of those water pitchers with a filter system. And picking up one of those one-gallon containers while suffering from lower back pain is like getting kidney punched by a welterweight, and if you've never had that done, it freaking hurts. Although, to be honest, I'm not certain of the weight classification of the Jagoff who jumped me and then punched my kidneys repeatedly when I was a kid. Of course, had our society not embraced neoliberalism, my back wouldn't hurt and we wouldn't need filtered water, so my whole spinal nightmare was created by the greed of our parents and grandparents who prioritized tax cuts over health care, safe drinking water, even saving the planet. From climate change. Tax cuts was more were more important than any of that. Hey, but at least they got their tax breaks. But you're you're still thinking about those bone spikes that we are evolving in our necks to support our heads as we now stare at screens more than any generation that preceded us. And how the hell did I find out about those bone spikes in our necks if I was laid up? The only contact I had with the outside world while I was forced to be homebound, my rear window, if you will, as I lay there on the couch in our apartment on the top floor of a three-flat, which meant trapped. And as anyone who has had back pain knows, nothing hurts more than going down or especially upstairs. While I was trapped in my home, laying on my back, all I knew about the outside world is all your parents or maybe your grandparents know. And that's by watching TV and listening to the radio. Yeah, TV and radio. TV is that big thing in the middle of your folks' living room or den taking up way too much space that costs way too much money to buy and even more to actually watch content. The radio is that thing in the kitchen that's a TV without pictures where you hear old people telling their old listeners how they can stay relatable to their kids and grandkids by using what they think is millennial slang but is sadly out of date. You know old school. In other words, they are both media for dinosaurs, for the old and irrelevant, unlike a smartphone whose which ownership of the latest model is the epitome of cool is essentially a portable interactive TV and radio. The only difference is TV and radio didn't cause humans to evolve bones to support our heads. 
Sure, it caused many to be couch potatoes, and in case you don't know what that is, a couch is a piece of furniture where people once sat together and enjoyed something collectively. And that neck bone spike evolution and interactivity with our portable TVs is feeding our sociopathic trend in society, not caring about those around you or how your phone's use or creation impacts your fellow humans roaming the planet. From lack of consideration of other safety by distracted driving to being distracted by the capabilities, all the bells and whistles of your new phone, from realizing the impact on the world and its production, we've created another product that enables us into being sociopaths. Sure, the smartphones may have led to revolutions, but every technology does. That's the only good thing about the sociopathic tendencies of the market. They're so focused on greed and unconcerned about human impact, they even overlook any vulnerabilities their latest innovation has that can be exploited to challenge their own power. We've all become zombies, complicit in our zombitude, reinforcing and reproducing the oppressive system, forcing us to evolve physically and mentally, and daytime TV is what those zombies, those yet undead watch, from morning local TV talk shows to that evening's national network news, it's day of the living dead TV programming while you're at home, or while you're at work and your parents and grandparents sit at home which you have convinced yourself is them enjoying their retirement, but in reality is they're bored out of their skulls, awaiting their inevitable and more than likely welcome death. And from consuming daytime TV, while I was laid up with a bad back, I'm betting daytime TV's living dead audience are very, very depressed. Not that their audience's death isn't of the utmost concern to daytime TV and their advertisers. Do you have mesothelioma? Spending a lot of time digging in the coal mines? Are you dying of asbestos poisoning and dying fast and you are desperate for a quick cash settlement now? Daytime TV has a company who will gladly profit from your desperation and early death. What about talc? Ever use it, ladies? If you did, you might be dying too. And Daytime TV has an advertiser who will gladly profit from your death by powder. Have you paid off your mortgage or enough of it that you can actually do one of those reverse mortgages that make it so you can actually stay in your house instead of having to sell the family home that holds so many memories? Daytime TV has a reverse mortgage profiteer for you who will happily scam your near-dead ass into far less money than your home is worth while throwing you into increasing debt that you did not see in the fine print. Can't see the fine print? Daytime TV has advertisers that want to sell you new low-cost glasses, but only after trying to shame you into doing so, with their ads showing a couple humiliated at a restaurant with comically oversized large print menus. And there's nothing funnier than shaming those with poor vision. Desperately need life insurance so you can make a last-ditch effort at leaving something, anything, to the loved ones you will leave behind? Daytime TV has those vultures for uh, uh, for the near-dead, too. Or maybe now that you have time on your hands, you have an idea for an invention or have written a Christian novel. Daytime TV has someone who can rip your ideas off as well. After falling for any or all of those cons, you probably don't have much money and live in squalor if you watch daytime TV, so advertisers are betting you have roaches or worse, termites that are eating away at your home. You can no longer maintain because you're either bedridden, too busy watching daytime TV, or financially devastated by reverse mortgages. Daytime TV is setting up your beloved elders to be taken for everything they're worth. But not everybody is a sociopath. I received dozens of messages and emails from listeners offering get well wishes after they learned I blew out my back last week. Clearly, there are people who do care for their fellow 
human beings. Problem is, it doesn't take many sociopaths to undo the good intentions of compassionate people. In fact, take as few as one. Because for sociopaths, obtaining, maintaining, and constantly expanding power are important for them to implement their unconscionable plans. Plans that, if necessary, devalue life and the sociopath's unfeeling desire to gain an advantage in what they perceive as a competition with everyone else that no one else knows they're involved in. Yes, we are living in yet another kind of apartheid, an apartheid of sociopaths with minority rule over the people they don't care about other than caring about how they can profit from the work of others. And that's why my back hurts, why we're growing spikes in our necks to hold up our heads so we can stare at our beloved smartphones. That's why daytime TV features grift after grift, stealing the last few pennies the elderly have. And while being laid up on my back, staring into the abyss that is daytime TV, watching through my rear window, I was reminded again, this is hell. This week's question from hell is what's on the bottom of your list of things to abolish? What's on the bottom of your list of things to abolish? All replies right on there during the third hour of this week's show. This week's winner gets a book featured in the third hour of this week's hell. Zilla Eisenstein's Abolitionist Socialist Feminism, Radicalizing the Next Revolution. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity in talk radio, so clearly and sadly, Gnome's gone insane. This is hell. By erasing the ugly history of slavery, by erasing the broken promises of freedom from our past, we erase any discussion of reparations from our present, here to help us recover that history so those broken promises of liberation can finally, finally be fulfilled Law, racial justice, and African-American history scholar Catherine Frankie, author of Repair, Redeeming the Promise of Abolition. And as soon as I get that clip off there, I'll be able to look at my notes. Catherine is the Sulzbacher Professor of Law, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Columbia University and Chair of the Board of Trustees of the Center for Constitutional Rights and is the Faculty Director of the Law, Rights, and Religion Project. Thank you so much for being on This Is Hell, Catherine, and welcome to the show. With you. Oh, I can barely hear you. Oh, there she is. Uh, you can follow Catherine on Twitter at Prof K Frank. That's K-F-R-A-N-K-E. So I'm going to start with a really simple question, but I know that the response is not that simple. What all could reparations repair? They can't end hate or racism. So what can they fix? Part of why we're having this conversation about reparations today is because we have never really, as a culture, as a society, acknowledged adequately the horror of slavery itself. What we did by abolishing slavery in the 1860s at the end of the Civil War was merely put an end to an odious institution, but we never considered really what we owed to the people who had been enslaved, who had been murdered, who had been kidnapped from from Africa, whose families had been separated, women who had been raped, children torn from their families, um, and they were owed much more than mere emancipation. They were certainly owed some kind of recognition of that horror of the torture of slavery on the one hand, but also 
some recognition that freedom itself requires some kind of material resources for them to actually be free people in our society. We've never done that. We've never recognized those horrors of slavery. All we did was abolish the institution and move forward. So that's why this, this discussion is still relevant today. So uh, how, how does emancipation fall short of freedom? Because I think people believe that those two words are synonymous. So how does it fall short of freedom? Well, one of the arguments I make in the book is that there's a difference between being freed, F-R-E-E-D, and being free, right? Being told you are no longer a slave or no longer enslaved is very different from actually being a free person. And so the institution may have been abolished, but the people that had been enslaved still lived in a society that was structured around white supremacy. So as soon as the institution of slavery was abolished, um, white legislators, white society implemented a whole range of measures that weren't slavery but came pretty darn close. And so people were freed into a society that still hated them still saw them as not fully human and certainly saw them as inferior to white people. Uh, and, and so we've never really had a reckoning with what it would have meant to welcome freed people into society as equals and give them the tools that they might have needed, material resources that they required for them to actually be free people in society standing shoulder to shoulder with white people. So, as I was saying earlier, the, you know, uh, reparations cannot end hate or racism, no matter how much we hope they can. But how far could reparations go to ending hate and racism? What impact do you think giving reparations to uh, the descendants of people who were victimized by slaves, what impact do you think that would have on hate and racism in the country? Well, I actually don't think that we ought to deliver reparations only to the people who can show a genetic connection to enslaved people, just as I don't think that the only people, white people, who have a responsibility for providing reparations are those who have some genetic connection to slaveholders. This is a collective wound, a society-wide problem, and a part of our history that we all have to own. So for black people to be free and for white people to be free of this history of the benefits of white supremacy that we have all enjoyed means taking this history that I think so many Americans don't know that much about, about what actually happened when we abolished slavery and how we fell so short in actually allowing people to be free. We need to take that history and make it part of our contemporary memory. Memory is a kind of history that has contemporary relevance. So what we need to do as a form of reparations today, as they talked about in Congress this week in the hearing that was held uh, in the House, is certainly apologize collectively for the enslavement of at the moment of, that we abolished the institution, four million black people, but so many more over the entire period in which we enslaved black people in this country. We need to think about the ways in which government policies, whether it was the Jim Crow laws 
that followed the emancipation of black people and the abolition of slavery, forms of lynching where the police looked the other way, if not actually facilitated lynchings, uh, government policies that redlined communities, uh, the, the Fair Housing Act that, that, that took up those redlining policies and didn't allow black people to move into certain neighborhoods or wouldn't grant um, loans to white people who wanted to live in neighborhoods that were racially integrated. There are all sorts of ways we need to take account of that compounding injury of racism and white supremacy that made black people enslavable in the first place. So we're not only talking about white people writing checks to black people, we're talking about a collective reckoning with the long-standing legacy of enslavement and the ideology of white supremacy that made enslavement possible. And what I, what I recommend that we do, among other things, uh, at the end of the book, is that we increase the estate tax. That what we're seeing right now is the largest intergenerational transfer of wealth we have ever seen in the world. There is wealth going from the great generation to actually my generation. I just turned 60. And the people in, of my generation, white people, um, are, are actually right now or will soon be inheriting collectively an enormous amount of accumulated wealth from our parents and our grandparents' generations. A lot, a lot of that accumulated wealth came from real estate investment, owning a home, Owning property was the greatest uh, engine of the economy and of the, the accumulation of wealth in, for, for Americans, but largely for white Americans. Black people never got in on that great deal, where you could buy property, sit tight, let it accumulate in value, and then pass on that value to your kids and to your grandkids. And part of why that's true is because black people were not allowed to own land at the end of the Civil War, once we emancipated folks and those people who had land, the land was stolen from them. So this estate tax would be a way of kind of recouping what is, I think, a huge asset that white people have been holding in trust for black people, uh, an unearned uh, kind of wealth that we should redistribute back to African-American communities, not just individuals, but communities. And I recommend that we look at community land trusts and other forms of collective ownership that would empower the black community to think about how to create collective forms of land ownership. If I look at Jackson, Mississippi, they have a really interesting uh, community land trust project there. They're building urban farms. They're actually becoming energy independent. And they're building housing for the community that is outside of the dynamics of gentrification and for-profit housing markets, but um, setting up an alternative way of thinking about how to build community uh, that nurtures and builds that community itself rather than building wealth in real estate investors from the outside. So there are a number of different pieces here around educating all of us around the histories and legacies of slavery, seeing the sort of unearned benefit that so many white people have acquired just by virtue of white supremacy and the, the sort of passive ways in which we have benefited from a society that denied resources to black people and granted them to white people. Um, and then what we ought to do as a society to redistribute some of that wealth to enrich and grow and empower black communities. 
So I had about 60 questions written for you, and then you made your incredible response, and all of a sudden I have 63 questions to ask you because that was amazing. So you were talking about uh, the Jackson Rising movement. How much yes. are African Americans already, without reparations being passed by the government in any way, how much are, the, how much are African American activists already addressing in their own way reparations? Well, there, there are these really dynamic experiments going on in a number of cities across the country, largely in black communities. So I'm sitting right now in Harlem in the up, upper Manhattan, and there's a community land trust about five blocks from me where there are a group of people in the community that have bought a couple of buildings, and what they're trying to do is hold those buildings in a trust almost like a cooperative or condominium sort of form of ownership, taking it out of what is an increasing and creeping gentrification of Harlem, to be sure, um, and then letting the community decide what to do with that housing. You see the same in Jackson. You see the same in Detroit and a number of different cities. But the problem is buying land, particularly in a place like Manhattan, is very expensive. Not so much in Jackson or Detroit, where there actually is uh, a great deal of urban space that's been kind of abandoned. And so some of the folks that are working with Jackson Rising have been able to get land at tax foreclosure sales from the city for actually not that much money. But what they do need are services. They need electricity, sewers, water, schools, roads, all those things that are publicly provided resources and utilities, and they're expensive. So even if the land comes cheap in places outside New York, they need resources in order to make that land and those community developments sustainable. And it's that, uh, it's, it's that resources for that part of the development projects that we need to find through public redistribution in the ways that I've described. When I mention institutional racism to people, they often say, white people often say, where do you see institutional racism? And it's sad that they're asking that because you see it all everywhere around you. You were mentioning the estate tax. How important is the estate tax to the uh, found? How important is it to the foundational aspects of institutional racism? Well, one of the founding values of this country was an anti-dynastic uh, commitment. We were not going to have kings. We were not going to have an upper class that inherited titles of nobility. There's actually language in the Constitution that prohibits titles of nobility like princes and earls and whatever those other titles of nobility are in England. Right? The idea is that each citizen would be equal to every other, and those people who served in the government would not be kings or some kind of um, people who inherited that post, but would be elected through a democratic process and a process where each one of us could run. And so a, a healthy inheritance tax is part of that long-term permanent commitment in this country to not allowing the development of dynasties, where wealth can accumulate in a family and be passed down from generation to generation, preserving wealth in that family and reproducing a kind of class structure that we revolted against that was present in the United Kingdom um, in the 17th or 18th century. And so the 
what we've done in the last number of years is lower and lower and lower the estate tax to the point that it's actually very low at this point. And um, never mind all the little loopholes and the ways in which you can pass money to your, to your children and to your grandchildren um, uh, in, before you die, so that we're actually allowing now the dynastic transfer of wealth um, um, from generation to generation, and it's overwhelmingly white people. Um, there is ten times the amount of wealth in your average white household than there is in an average black household in this country. And so part of why the estate tax, I think, is so important is that it really appeals to a fundamental American value um, that each of us, each generation, should be born into a society um, with an equal chance to succeed and do well. Um, and that we should not hold that wealth in an intergenerational kind of way um, that allows for some people to always have a leg up and others to actually never get ahead. Why not just give money in reparations? Why not just, as you were saying earlier, just have white people cut checks to African-Americans? Why is that a bad idea? Well, it individualizes the issue. So it, it individualizes it in the sense that only those people who are descendants of slaves are, uh, deserve to get a check, and only those people who we can trace uh, a genetic connection to slave owners have some kind of responsibility. And certainly, you know, those are, the, are the, I would think, the most important people to be thinking about this issue. But all of us in this society, whether we have a direct genetic connection to slavery or not, are implicated in the ways in which white supremacy structures our economy, our political structure, and our society more generally. As a white person, I have benefited in countless ways from being white things that I didn't sign up for or ask for, but they are passive ways that there is always a wind at my back. I am always given the benefit of the doubt. I walk down the streets of Harlem and the police do not look at me in the same way that my black neighbors experience every day. And it's something that I have to take account of um, and I notice. Um, and it's a very difficult thing for me to individually fix. And so I think we need collective remedies and a collective reckoning where all of us see our responsibility in the, um, uh, the perpetuation and the re reproduction of white supremacy on the individual but on the collective level. Is the first step then for maybe our, that we can take ourselves when it comes to reparations is to recognize the ways that we benefit from white privilege? Is that the first step toward having a repair in our society with what has happened in the history of slavery in our country? It's one of the first steps. I think also just having a collectively honest discussion about what slavery was, how inadequate the abolition of slavery was, what, what happened almost immediately after we abolished the institution in terms of basically socially and legally re-enslaving um, black people and locking them into uh, a, a, a class of peasantry through contract labor that looked almost exactly like enslaved labor. So we need, I think, as a first step to know our history, to 
own it and to see its connection to how our economy, how our legal system, et cetera, is organized today. Um, the second, and I think at the same time step, certainly is where white people have to see themselves implicated in this issue. And this, as a white person writing about this issue, part of what has motivated me is the, is the realization that this is not only something that implicates African Americans, that they're making a demand for a check and for justice, it implicates us as white people um, because we suffer from this ongoing sin of the burden of that history, not in the same way that African-American people do, but in an allied way. It's our society, too. And if we want to understand ourselves as living in a true democracy, where freedom actually has some concrete and material meaning, and that where our society is structured by some fundamental commitment to justice, we as white people have to reckon with this intergenerational legacy of, have, of not adequately freeing the slaves, not adequately allowing formerly enslaved people to become full citizens and free people. And, and, and I can look out my window here in Harlem and see the results of that today. So it's a conversation we as white people have to have with one another, just as black people are with one another and have been for some time. We are speaking with Catherine Frankie. She is author of Repair, Redeeming the Promise of Abolition. You begin your book by discussing the people living on the sea islands off the coast of Georgia and South Carolina, which you describe as a place that has kept its African history and culture alive, unlike anywhere else in the United States. You cite a Vogue magazine story about the Gullah culture that lives there, describing the major town, uh, Beaufort, one of the most beautiful oceanside towns in the area, this way. Today, Beaufort is respected for its preservation of antebellum ar- architecture, classic p- plantation-style mansions with deep porches made for sipping buttermilk, mixed cocktails. Locals liken the town to a modest millionaire who never put on airs. You add the violence, torture, dehumanization, and brutality of slavery slide off the page in these tales, and in their place the travel writer delights the potential visitor with ancient and exotic African tongues, food, and civilization. Does erasing slavery from history erase reparations in the present is the reason there has never been reparations because we have never made an honest assessment of the history of slavery our history absolutely and part of what was so impressive to me when i was in the sea islands um, but also when i was in mississippi and when i was in north carolina um, is the way in which we have truly whitewashed our history um, uh, there was this, these articles in Travel and Leisure and Vogue and other uh, fancy uh, magazines that encouraged tourists to go to the Sea Islands and look at that beautiful culture, and they describe black people there in a kind of quaint, ethnic um, diversity sort of way of, you know, isn't it fun that they still kind of follow their old ways? But the history of violence in the Sea Islands, the history of slavery and its ugliness, the fact that the folks, that black people who were there did not choose to be there, their families were brought in chains, is not part of that story. And even if you um, go to one of the lovely bed and breakfasts in Beaufort or in um, Hilton Head and many of the other places there, uh, the history of actually those buildings is not told. And one of the things I went back and did with this book is go back and look at how those areas um, were populated um, in the 1860s as plantations. 
who lived there, who owned the land, who worked that land. And what we saw in 1863, long before the Emancipation Proclamation and the formal abolition of slavery, was that northern military officers and troops showed up in the Sea Islands um, uh, and the white plantation owners fled. They went onto the mainland and they fled and they abandoned the plantations and the white northern troops occupied that area and militarily emancipated the black people. One of the first things that the military leaders noticed, to their great surprise, but it was so morally pressing for them, was that some kind of compensation, some kind of restitution or reparation was owed the formerly enslaved people. And what they said is that they were owed this land, that they had farmed the land, they had given it all of its value, and one of the uh, military leaders said basically that they have an equitable mortgage on the land, that they're, they're owed the land for all of their stolen labor. And so I actually went back and found the property records where houses, acreage, plantations, plots, and 40-acre units were given with deeds to formerly enslaved people who marked these deeds with an X because they could not write. It had been illegal, of course, to teach enslaved people how to write. But they marked them with an X. And in some cases, you could actually see a thumbprint in ink or a palm print in ink. These first acts of citizenship and in freedom that black people were able to undertake in owning land. It's just, I have to tell you, being in those archives was so incredibly moving, of being able to touch the same paper, pieces of paper that these people touched as, as a title to land that they had worked and lived on. Their ancestors were buried there. They understood this to be reparations for land, or excuse me, for slavery, uh, and for the horror of what they had undergone. And, what, uh, and General Sherman came through and expanded this program, and this is where today we get this term of 40 acres and a mule, that the military officials, almost more than anyone else, recognized that some kind of repair, more than just mere freedom, was required for the people who they were emancipating. As soon as Lincoln is assassinated at the end of the war, Johnson, the new President Johnson, the first act he um, undertook in the Oval Office was to grant amnesty to those former Confederate uh, uh, leaders and the former plantation owners and restored all of their land. So all of that land that had been deeded to formerly enslaved people as reparations was violently taken back. And so to circle back to where I started, when you go to the Sea Islands now and you stay in these beautiful bed and breakfasts, I have the deeds for those homes of where they were, what families, what black families owned them for a year, for nine months, and then that land was stolen from them and returned to white families, the families that had owned those people before. None of that history is there when you go to the Sea Islands now.
So can we blame the lack of reparations? Can we blame the institutional racism that is the legacy of slavery? Can we blame that all on President Andrew Johnson? Because, you know, in this whole process that we're having people talk about the potential impeachment of President Trump, they'll mention the other two people who have been impeached, that is Bill Clinton and Andrew Johnson. But you never hear the reason why Andrew Johnson was impeached, and if I might be wrong and you can correct me, but the reason that he was impeached was because he wanted to keep reinforcing white supremacy and end any chance at reparations for African Americans. Am I right? Well, I don't think that was the primary reason why he was impeached. He was impeached because he, he was a crook. Uh, he, he, was, he was stealing stuff from the government. But, um, uh, but there certainly was an active debate in Congress uh, about what uh, the uh, post-emancipation period should look like. Um, and Reconstruction, of course, the period that, that was the political period that was put in place after the end of the Civil War was short-lived, largely because there wasn't will in the Congress or in the, in the office of the president to actually have some kind of ongoing reckoning with the, um, the, the wreckage in the aftermath of slavery. So uh, uh, Andrew Johnson was uh, certainly not a leader in, uh, in leading repar- in reparations, reconstruction, and having any kind of justice for formerly enslaved people. And that doesn't come as any surprise. When Lincoln named him as his vice president, he was trying to hold the union together, and he knew that Johnson was a supporter of slavery. Um, so he, he didn't become anybody different than he had been before when, when he assumed the presidency. Uh, he merely acted on values and, and political commitments that, that he had held for a very long time. Earlier this year, we spoke with a scholar and writer, Damaris B. Hill, author of A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing, The Incarceration of African-American Women, from Harriet Tubman to Sandra Bland. One of the things that came up then, and I've mentioned it a few times on the show since, is that Damaris writes about, quote, the long and rarely acknowledged American presumption that black people are less than human. To what degree can reparations address what Damaris calls the American presumption that black people are less human. Can reparations reclaim black humanity? Can it go the whole way of, of, of reclaiming black humanity? No. Um, I think it can go uh, a significant way uh, towards recognizing the, um, the inhumanity, the torture, uh, the legal status of enslaved people as something that were, they were things, not humans. Um, and again, it requires us to go back and relearn that history and understand what slavery actually looked like. You will hear elected members of Congress who say that actually slavery wasn't so bad, Republican members of Congress, um, that there were actually happy slaves. And that kind of uh, uh, pro-slavery myth you heard in the 19th century when slavery was legal, and you still hear it today. And that, I think, is the residue of the failure to see the true humanity of black people. But the fact that we put disproportionately and overwhelmingly disproportionately black people in cages, in prisons, we don't fund schools in black communities, uh, we don't fund housing, health care for African Americans is well below what health care for white people is. Um, uh, the, the maternal mortality rate for black women is disproportionately high across the country, and actually the United States ranks as among the lowest 
uh, or you know, the, actually the highest, let's say, of black of, of infant mortality uh, globally, uh, and that's largely because of black women. Um, those are all in, indicators of how we don't really respect the humanity of black people in this country. You write literary theorist Paul St. Armour observes that reverse engineering contemporary trauma can illuminate how the present can be haunted by past expectations. Thwarted expectations can become insisted in our histories, thereby impairing self-understanding and commitment to the present. Revisiting key historical moments at which things could have gone differently and after emancipation there was some expectation that they could can provide the opportunity not only for regret and reflection, but to revive those lost and more just futures in the present. How can the utopian emancipation projects for black emancipation that followed slaves being freed from bondage be a model for reparations today? Have we already figured out, Have did we already figure out how to do reparations effectively following the Civil War, and we just then just dropped that idea entirely? I think that's absolutely right. There was a um, widespread view uh, in some sectors that what we needed to do was invest in black freedom through land redistribution and through the tools and resources to work that land, whether it was a mule or seeds or um, horses or or other um, plows equipment. Um, uh, And by divesting in the black community uh, at the end of the war uh, and continuing to divest from the black community until this day, um, we have locked black people into a kind of second-class caste status in the United States. And we can recover that past, that trajectory that was started and then ended so quickly by reinvesting today in the black community, and this is why I talk about community land trusts, but not only in schools by abolishing or at least minimizing the reach of prisons. And I would, I would urge listeners to look at the uh, Movement for Black Lives platform uh, that was issued a couple of summers ago. It has a really sophisticated diagnosis of the tendrils and the breadth of white supremacy in our society, but not only diagnosing the problem, but prescribing what we ought to do about it, both in terms of reparations, but in this concept that they put to work, which I think is extremely interesting and productive, of divest, invest. So divest from things like prisons, um, uh, divest from things like police, and invest in communities to allow them to thrive rather than to have them cower under the, uh, the billy club, uh, the taser, the gun, or the cage. Can equality and disparity be addressed without discussing reparations? Well, I don't think we can talk about having a full equal and just society without having some kind of collective reckoning with enslavement. You know, some people say it's the original sin in this country. It's not. It's actually the second most profound sin. The original sin is what we did to Native Americans. Um, And there is, of course, a parallel and very important conversation going on about reparations for Native Americans that I think ought to look quite different from what we ought to do for African Americans, um, because what they were denied was sovereignty of, of being a sovereign, separate people and a nation, 
Whereas for African Americans, we kidnapped them, brought them here um, as individuals, um, and then put them through the torture and the murder and the theft and the rape and the separation of, of, of slavery. So um, uh, it's the second most fundamental sin and founding sin of this country is certainly chattel slavery. Uh, and if we don't reckon with both of those, I don't think we have any standing to talk about this being a just society today. You, quote, return to the archive not to relive and relent to a horrendous moment of moral failure and disappointment, but instead to reimagine a version of freedom, freedom, to recognize that the emancipation of enslaved people is not over and that there are things we can do now to heal a national wound left festering for 150 years. What do we miss in our understanding of slavery and its legacy when we only view it as a time of misery, when it is only expressed in terms of what people might call tragedy porn and nothing more? What happens when we ignore the story of what happened when the enslaved were freed? Well, if we fast forward to today and we think about four million people somewhere in the world being held as slaves, um, as a collective project, not just a minor thing in some society that is sort of in a dark corner, but is out in the open throughout an entire society. And we, we wage a war or we have the international community condemn that practice of slavery. We would understand that something more than merely rewriting the law and saying we will not enslave you anymore was owed in order for there to be justice for the enslaved people and for the society to heal itself. And so part of the problem with how we um, are often taught the history of slavery in the United States is it happened a long time ago. It was a terrible thing. We fought a war over it. We passed the, we ratified the 13th Amendment, abolishing slavery, and that's the end of the story. We don't have a more rich narrative about what actually we should we have done to rid this poison, this rot from our society. And if we just think about what we would expect in terms of justice today, I think most people would agree that mere abolition is not enough. Right, that the people who are freed would require more, both in a backward-looking sense of, of repair for the horrible, horrible degradation and murder and torture of being enslaved, but also in a forward-looking way of what they would need in order to build free lives. We didn't do any of that in the 19th century in the United States, and we're still living with the effects of our failure to really abolish the institution of slavery in a meaningful way for enslaved people. We have been speaking with law, racial justice, and African-American history scholar Catherine Frankie. She is author of Repair, Redeeming the Promise of Abolition. And Catherine, I really want to thank you for rescheduling for this week because the day before that was, you were supposed to be on last time, I broke a wisdom tooth, so I really appreciate you rescheduling for us. Uh, you can follow Catherine on Twitter at Prof K Frankie. That's Frank with an E at the end. One last question for you, Catherine. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question for each and every one of them is the question from hell, the question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer our audience, just might hate your response. You write, the story of reparations for slavery is not over. The outstanding promissory note still held by black people in this country can be paid off today. What happens if that promissory note 
is never fulfilled. Is America sustainable without finally meeting the demands of the promissory note, promissory note of equality that our founding documents guarantee to everybody? Well, you know, justice, accomplishing justice in any society is not a moment in time. It's a process, and it's an ongoing process that takes work. Martin Luther King famously said that history arcs towards justice, but that is not a law of physics or something that just happens on its own. It requires all of us to work to move history in a more just direction. And so will we deliver in a single stroke the kind of um, payment for that promissory note? Absolutely not. It will be an ongoing, complex, uncomfortable, um, but in the end, extremely important process. And I'm thrilled that Congress is taking it up. I'm thrilled that um, pretty much everybody who's running for president on the Democratic side is talking in a serious way about reparations. We seem to have a new kind of momentum for it, and all of us need to examine what our own role is in moving that arc more towards justice. Catherine, I cannot thank you enough for being on our show. This is a fascinating book, and I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thank you for reading the book and for talking to me about it. Oh, you could tell I read the book. See? Not many people do that. <laughs> I can. It's wonderful. <laughs> All right. Take care, Catherine. You too. And I hope your tooth's better. <laughs> it is. Now my back is bad. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. The murder and rape of a 20-year-old Okinawan student at the hands of a former U.S. service member working on one of the island's many military bases has had a massive impact on Okinawa's relationship with the U.S., with Japan, may even change the world, how the world relates to U.S. military bases that now stretch around the planet. We'll discuss the rarely talked about global network of U.S. military bases and their impact on locals in a few when we talk to award-winning writer Akemi Johnson, author of Night in the American Village, Women in the Shadow of the U.S. Military Bases in Okinawa. Akemi is a former Fulbright scholar in Okinawa. Kemi has received a Pushcart Prize nomination as well as the James D. Phelan Literary Award. You can find out more about her at Akemi Johnson, A-K-E-M-I Johnson, A-K-E-M-I Johnson.com. I know I didn't tell you this before the show, Alex, but what have you been up to on social media? And because I didn't print out a rundown, when did I say the next guest is supposed to start? 8.10, 8.15? I can't remember. Uh, 15. Uh, 15. So okay, got 12 it. minutes. Uh, well, the most important thing I shared that people really liked was a Jackman article titled, We Really Need to Eat the Rich. <laughs> and if you weren't on board then, uh, there's the quote from it. Between 1989 and 2018, the top 1% increased its total net worth by $21 trillion with a T. Uh, the bottom 50% actually saw its net worth decrease by $900 billion over the same period. Yikes. Uh, so uh, maybe we really do need to eat the rich. We do. They're uh, delicious, too. And then people got mad at me for posting a black agenda. Uh, <laughs> oh, man, did people get mad at you? Yeah. Marjorie Spruill, who I will be quoting on the show maybe later today, maybe, maybe you know, later on this week's show. She was un unhappy about it. Oh, is she going to be on the show? Uh-oh. Uh, no, she's not going to be on the show. Oh, I'm just going to quote her. She's already been on the show. Okay. I, yeah, because uh, apparently it was uh, saying that the best thing that can come out of Bernie Sanders' second attempt to force a Democratic Party to disobey the Lords of Capital would be a breakup of the party, uh, so on and so <laughs> forth. You can uh, read that in uh, Black Agenda Reports, uh, Bruce Dixon's voice. Um, and people got mad about it. It's good. It's a good piece. You should read it. People dislike Bruce Dixon as much as they disliked Alex Coburn for wanting to destroy the Democratic Party. Anything else? 
Oh yeah, I posted a picture of you with a uh, can of Bengay. Uh, it wasn't. Oh, no, it was icy hot. Icy, icy hot. Is that, hot, is that your friend. preferred brand? Uh, it, it's just whatever. I've been throwing everything at my back. Everything but the kitchen sink because that would hurt my back. It's time for listener feedback that has been sent to us at chuck at thisishell.com. July's show will only have listener suggested guests, so we keep getting suggestions like this one from Henry, who writes, Hello, I like your show. I would love to hear you talk to Paul Mason. He had a book come out a couple of months ago and might be looking to talk to people on podcasts about his book. I'd be interested to hear it. Well, Henry, thank you very much. We also do a radio show, so maybe we could have him on the radio show too. The book Henry is referring to is Paul Mason's new work, Clear Bright Future, a Radical Defense of a Human of the human being. Uh, now, we talked to Paul back in 2013 when he was on to discuss his then-just-published book, Why It's Still Kicking Off Everywhere, The New Global Revolutions. So, Alex, you know, have we played that interview as a classic interview during Patreon podcast yet, the Paul Mason interview? Oh, Alex just stepped away from the desk, apparently. He might be using the restroom. I think that, uh, I don't think we have. So, I think think that we're going to be playing that next week. We'll play our talk with Paul Mason from 2013, and I'll have a new exclusive monologue for you as well here on Patreon. Mika also suggested a guest who has already been on our show. Mika writes, Nancy McLean, Democracy in Chains. Somebody likely already suggested this, or you probably already considered it, but just in case... I came to it by the Trotsky and the Wild Orchids podcast guys, which one way or the other, this is hell and maybe algorithm magic dark or otherwise, turned me on to. I love those guys. They seem pretty serious scholars, intellectual history, which I've had a weakness for ever since some nice professor slapped it on the diploma of an ignorant kid that couldn't figure out which department to take courses in. Anyway, the Trotsky guys convinced me to ignore the super sensational subtitle So it also turned you off. Give it another try. Cheers, Mika. Now, Nancy was on our show also. She's been on our show in the past. She was on when that book was released back in 2017. And you can hear our interview with her, which was one of the very first she did on the book at thisishell.com. Hey, Alex, I was uh, saying earlier, so Paul Mason interview from 2013. Did we ever play that uh, on Patreon? I don't think so, no. That doesn't strike a bell. Okay, so we had a... uh, Listener Henry suggests that we have him on the have, uh, Paul Mason on the show. So next week, let's have that as the classic interview that we'll be sharing on Patreon with you, our Patreon subscribers. Scott also wants someone on the show who has been on before. Again, Alex, I got to ask you about this. Scott writes, "Hi Chuck, I don't recall you ever having William T. Volman on the show, but could be wrong. Regardless, he wrote the feature article, the cover story on the Southwest border in this month's Harper's, kind of reminiscent of Charles Bowden, who I." loved your interviews with you're probably already at least somewhat familiar with volman and i think it would be a fantastic interview keep up the incredible work scott uh we've had william on the show correct william volman has been on the show you've told me that but i haven't found evidence yet i'm positive we have had him on the show i swear we've had him on the show add that on the list of things that i find in the archives yeah so we'll keep digging around the archives and see if we can find that and if we can then we'll play our william volman interview i I just can't remember if I, i swear we did I swear we did. About a book or a Harper's piece? Uh, I think it was about a magazine piece, and I don't know if it was in Harper's. 
A listener named Mel, and no, it's not the feral cat who's yelling at Alex right now outside the producer's room window. Mel sent a guest suggestion. Hi, Chuck and Alex. Thanks for your show. I really like the rad politics plus dry humor combo. That's humor with two U's. Keep up the great work. I'd like to suggest Sophie Lewis as a person in interview. They, they've just published a book called Full Surrogacy Now on Working Capitalism, Family Abolition, Feminist Solidarity, etc. The book is called Full Surrogacy Now, Feminism Against Family. You can check their Twitter at Repro Utopia. Repro Utopia. Take care. And I'm crossing my fingers to hear Sophie on your show soon. Uh, they're such a great person and creative academic. Signed, Mel. But Mel is spelled with an accent over the E and in a line through the L. So I know I'm not pronouncing it correctly. I know an accent over the E is an A sound. That line through the L that's Polish, and I don't know, I've never known what that sound makes. Either way, thanks for the tip, Mel. And we hope to have Sophie on our show in July when we only have listener suggested guests on air. Camillo also has a guest suggestion. Love This Is Hell and recommend it every chance I get. I want to recommend Chris Brooks as a guest. He's a labor reporter from Tennessee who was writing on the UAW organizing drive in Chattanooga at the Volkswagen plant there. Camillo then shares a link to an article at The Intercept titled Tennessee Governor Bill Lee's offices working with Volkswagen to crush a union drive. Camillo says, thanks. Uh, you're welcome, Camillo. And thanks because we got to get back to doing more labor stuff as in actions on the ground. So, yeah, we're going to put him on our list as well for the July guest. Tom, who always sends great guest suggestions, writes, the author of this book might make an intriguing interview. I'll warrant Christopher Tyerman, who wrote... The World of the Crusades. Tom then links to a review at the New Republic that states, As the Oxford professor Christopher Tyerman observes in his new tome, uh-oh, it's a tome. Hmm. I don't know if I have time to read a tome. The World of the Crusades. The idea that the Crusades were a battleground between distinct racial forces is a fantasy dreamed up by modern geopolitical interests. When President Trump, for example, visited Jerusalem in 2017 to recognize it as Israel's capital, he fulfilled a key campaign promise made to his often fanatical religious fan base who saw the move as both scripturally and historically significant. There's an influential though delusional, cohort of evangelical Christians who believe that the rebuilding of the Third Temple is a sign of the oncoming apocalypse, an inherently anti-Semitic brand of conspiracy theory eschatology that nevertheless behooves the interests of Israeli right-wingers and American neoconservatives alike. Tom, that sounds great. Great enough to ignore the fact that an old white dude wrote the book. We also had a listener suggest themselves as a guest. Eric Blank writes, Dear Chuck and Alex, I am the author of a new book, Red State Revolt, The Teachers Strike Wave and Working Class Politics, and I would be happy to be interviewed by This Is Hell regarding the teachers' strikes and their implications for 2020, the white working class and or revival of organized labor. I've copied below some blurbs of the book by... All past guests on your show, Diane Ravitch, Jane McElvey, and Corey Robin. Please let me know if you are interested. Best, Eric Blank. With so many past This Is Hell guests blurbing Eric's book, 
Eric, we'll definitely put you on the list for July. If you are an artist or know an artist, that would be a welcome addition to our annual This Is Hell, This Is Art show during our anniversary party next month. On Saturday, July 27th, we are still taking submissions, and you can email me your or their art, and we'll definitely consider it to be part of the 2019 This Is Art show. Again, email me your art or someone's art you love to chuck at thisishell.com, and they could be part of this year's annual This Is Art show that happens during our anniversary and listener appreciation party every year. This is our fourth annual 20th anniversary party which means 23 years on the year. I know it's kind of complicated, but it's math. We're also looking for musicians to perform as well. So if you are an artist or a musician, or you want to suggest artists or musicians to take part in this year's listener appreciation and anniversary party and art show at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon on Saturday, July 27th, all you have to do is email me at chuck at thisishell.com. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, U.S. Overseas Military Bases and what the military, what the murder and rape of a 20-year-old Okinawan student reveals about those bases. We'll learn all about abolitionist socialist feminism. We'll talk about force-feeding prisoners in the U.S., which will be a very disgusting conversation. And Jeff Dorchin has a moment of truth. This week, Jeff thinks about artificial intelligence and how stupid it is. We'll also keep reminding you about our upcoming fourth annual 20th anniversary uh, party and listener appreciation party that's happening at Carrie's Lounge on July 27th. Uh, make sure you have that on set on a reminder. Of course, we'll have the question from hell. We might have some more listener feedback. We want to thank some listeners for sharing This Is Hell online and some others for supporting This Is Hell at thisishell.com when they click on support, as well as what's happening on upcoming episodes of the show. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. U.S. military bases now span the globe. Not that we talk about it much or at all. And if we're not discussing the fact that the U.S. is the only nation with a global network of military bases, then we're definitely not talking about the impact those bases have on the local population. And if we're not speaking to that, then we're not paying attention to what's happening in Okinawa. Here to help us understand how the rape and murder of a 20-year-old may end up challenging the U.S. Overseas Military Base System award-winning writer Akemi Johnson is author of Night in the American Village, Women in the Shadow of the U.S. Military Bases in Okinawa. Welcome to This is Hell, Akemi. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Find out more about Akemi at akemijohnson.com and follow her on Twitter at Akemi Johnson. Now, I hope I do not butcher Rena's last name, but I'll do my best. You start with <laughs> writing of the murder and rape of Rena Shimabukuru, a 20-year-old Okinawan woman in April 2016. In December 2017, U.S. military base worker Kenneth Franklin Gadsden was found guilty of murder and rape resulting in death and the illegal disposal of a body. In September 2018, Gadsden appealed his conviction, but that appeal was denied. In April of this year, as the New York Times reported, a United States Navy sailor and a Japanese woman were found dead on the Japanese island of Okinawa in what the police are investigating as a murder 
suicide. The Times also reported violence committed by American service members or related personnel on the island has long caused friction between Washington and Tokyo. So these are two different instances over a short period of time. How common is it for violence to be committed against women on Okinawa by U.S. service members and those who work at the military bases in Okinawa? So as I found it is, it is quite common and there is a long history of this sexual violence stretching back to the American invasion of Okinawa during World War II in the Battle of Okinawa. So, and much of it goes unreported. We hear about these um, incidences like the ones you mentioned that, you know, end up in murder. And there was a really um, highly publicized rape in 1995 of a 12-year-old girl but, you know, the majority of these reported to police. And, and so I think the public is not even aware of how expensive this issue may be. So is the amount of murder and rape caused by U.S. service members and military base workers in Okinawa, is that unique compared to other military bases? Or is this typical wherever U.S. military bases happen to be? You know, um, my research focused on Okinawa, but I think we know that it's an issue within the U.S. military, right? So I think it's fair to um, imagine that this is issue wherever there are U.S. military bases. Um, but one thing unique to Okinawa and Japan that I learned is that, um, you know, because there there's, a, there's an especially low reporting of in Japanese and Okinawan society. One survey found about only about 4% are reported to police. And so some U.S. service members have admitted that knowing this fact led to commit a crime because they felt like they could get away with it. Now, we know that in war, rape happens at alarming levels, at alarming rates, rates. But the U.S. is not at war with Japan. The military base in Okinawa is not in any military engagement on Okinawa. So why does so much violence and rape perpetuated by U.S. service members and military base workers against Okinawa's women occur? Why does it happen if this isn't in a state of war, which is the only time when you actually regrettably, expect these alarming levels of sexual violence? Mm -hmm. Well, as I mentioned, right, we, we actually know that there is are alarming levels within the military itself, right? So I think this is really an issue of, you know, just being at war. But, um, you know, some people do think that maybe there is a continuing kind of colonial attitude in Okinawa. Okinawa was occupied by the U.S. Um, for 27 years after World War II until 1972. And during that time, U.S. service members definitely enjoyed, um, you know, less legal consequences to their actions and could often get away with crimes. And necessarily anymore, some are some protections that exist um, under the status, status of forces agreement today. So, you know, some services may feel that they can get over these crimes more easily because of this situation.
You write that Kenneth Franklin Gadsden was 32. This is the person who raped and murdered Rena, an African-American ex-Marine who had been stationed on the island for a few years. The Marine Corps had sent him back to the United States in 2011, and after his honorable discharge, he returned to Okinawa in 2014. He found a job at Kadima, Kadena Air Base, working as a civilian contractor at a company that provided internet and cable TV to the U.S. bases. So he was no longer a U.S. service member, but was working for a contractor on the base. Was his any, is there any sense that his lack of discipline or oversight because he was no longer within the military was in any way a contributing factor to his crime? Do non-service members who are still base workers commit crimes any more than U.S. service members? Did you find that out in any of your research? Um, I did not. I did not find that out, that, that answer. And I don't I don't think I, mean, I, I do think this was a especially horrific case. And I don't think it's, um, you know, emblematic of most service members by far in Okinawa, um, you know, what he did in this incident. And I don't know if that, you know, if he was active duty, if that could have been prevented or, you know, he really had kind of a, a mental health issue. Um, but, you know, for that he's actually though very typical in some ways um, of many service members who choose to leave the military and continue living in Okinawa. There's actually a large community of um, retired service members who call Okinawa home and get these jobs on the basis of civilian contractors. Why is Okinawa so attractive to former service members to go back and live on the island? What what do you think draws them there? Because I think that might have uh, reflect or reveal the way in which American culture has had an impact on the island. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, there are a number of reasons. I mean, one, it's a gorgeous tropical, subtropical island. It's, you know, a great place to be. Um, it's, it is the poorest prefecture in Japan, but... You know, some service members may find that the standard of living feels higher than there than some places in the U.S. So, you know, you can have quite a nice life there. And, you know, because of the military presence, if you leave the military, you can still get a job fairly easily, an English-speaking job, by working on base because there are, are all of these civilian contractor jobs. So you don't have to learn the local language. You can still access, you know, American goods on base, right? You can be in this American bubble um, while being living outside of the U.S. How American then is Okinawa? Does it seem uh, excessively more American than Japan is, for instance? I think Okinawa seems like it an entirely different place than the rest of Japan. Um, it's, it's a very, it's a mix of cultures. So you have the American influence, Japanese influence, and then the indigenous Okinawan culture as well. So all of that is mixing together, especially in these areas around the bases, these kind of border towns. And um, yeah, I think the American presence has been there for, you know, over seven, 70 years. And, it's felt in many ways in the local community. It's really, I, when I was reading that part of your book, I was very fascinated by this kind of bubble that uh, people were living in in what you call this American village where they have A&Ws and they have everything that's very American. And I was thinking about that and I was trying to determine what the impact is of some of the worst tendencies of American culture. You talk about how there is... 
I guess you could call it voluntary racial segregation on the base, the U.S. military base. How much have the worst tendencies of American culture had an impact on Okinawa? Yeah, I mean, as I saw, I think American ideas of race have definitely been imported into these surrounding communities. Um, of course, the military used to be segregated and and service members were forced to segregate by race. Now it's not. But as I found, as I, you know, explored some of these areas off base, um, still there is, it looks as though it's still segregated in some ways with service members choosing to, you know, go to certain places where there's often only one race there. And so I think in kind of in response to that, maybe some local women have developed this um, kind of subculture where, they may only they they say they only want to date men of one certain race. So I'm only dating black men, white men, Latino men, and there's kind of these different subcultures. And I found that really often rooted in racial stereotypes that maybe have come over with the U.S. military presence. And the military presence on the island of 1.4 million is 25,000 U.S. service members across several bases on the island. Meanwhile, there are 25,000 service members also stationed on the mainland of Japan, which is a far, obviously a far, far bigger space than Okinawa is. So to what extent is the so how much is the reason for the massive amount of um, U.S. service members based on Okinawa, how much is that due to, due to racism by mainland Japanese against the indigenous population of Okinawa? Hmm. I mean, I think, yeah, Okinawa, there's a history of Okinawa um, being, you know, not treated very well by the rest of Japan. It used to be an independent kingdom that in Japan, um, you know, overthrew the king and annexed the kingdom as a prefecture in the late 1800s. And, you know, since then, I think a lot of people would say Okinawans have not enjoyed the same considerations as people on the mainland um, at following the war. The, occupa- the U.S. occupation land lasted 20 years longer in Okinawa than on the mainland. And, you know, during that time, Okinawans were not protected under the constitution of the U.S. or Japan. They lacked basic rights and had their land taken away for these U.S. military bases. So, you know, because of that that occupation, that's that's the period when a lot of these bases moved from the mainland to Okinawa. So, uh, and you also point out that the, uh, I'm just going to repeat some of the stuff you just mentioned, but uh, you write American bases in Japan became concentrated in Okinawa because the 1952 peace treaty restored only the mainland sovereignty. The U.S. military won continued rule of Okinawa, and over the next decade, bases closed on the mainland and multiplied in Okinawa, where the U.S. military enjoyed total control. So when it comes to foreign lands liberated from the Japanese military occupation, did the U.S. simply become the new military occupier, occupiers? Is it fair or unfair to make any moral equivalence between Japanese military occupation of Okinawa to current U.S. military occupation of Okinawa? Well, of course, the um, I mean, Japan did not 
have a military occupation of Okinawa, they, they annexed it as a prefecture. So in theory, it should have been, you know, just like another part of Japan, right? But I think a lot of people would say it, it doesn't feel like just another part of Japan. It feels like a different place with, um, you know, more disadvantage, disadvantages than the rest of the country. Um, but at least, you know, as Japanese citizens, they, they enjoy protection under the Constitution and the same rights as other people. So under the U.S. occupation, they did not have those same rights. So I think, you know, there are some differences there. But I think at the same time, a lot of people do see it as a dual colonial situation that's continuing to today. You mentioned going to a makeshift memorial on the anniversary of Rena's death and seeing a sticker on a telephone post nearby written in English, no rape, no base, no tears. Why English? What does it say to you about this sticker being near Rena's memorial and being in English? Who is the message's intended audience? Because often when I see protests overseas with posters where they are carrying posters or signs that are in English when English is uh, not the main language, it, it often seems to be that the signal is for somebody other than the people who live in that area. So why English and what does it say to you about the sticker near her memorial when it is in English? Right, definitely. Well, if that is definitely aimed at, I think, the U.S. military presence, so individual service members there, but then also I think the wider international community. So many activists in Okinawa are hoping to get the attention of people around the world to, you know, learn about their situation and maybe care because they are not having a lot of luck with the Japanese um, leaders who are ignoring their desires currently about um, building a new military base on their island. We are speaking with award-winning writer Akemi Johnson. She is author of Night in the American Village, Women in the Shadow of the U.S. Military Bases in Okinawa. Akima is, Akemi is a former Fulbright Scholar on Okinawa. You can find out more about her at akemijohnson.com, and you can follow Akemi on Twitter at Akemi Johnson. You write, I became interested in Rena's story because it, like too many others before hers, came to mean much more than the crime itself. It came to mean something about the U.S., Japan Security Alliance in Okinawa, where there is a long-simmering tension over the U.S. military presence. Stories about locals and Americans become allegories, and there's a war of stories going on. The pro-base side circulates videos of belligerent demonstrators outside the base gates to show the protest movement is driven by discrimination and hate. A video of Marines cleaning up a local beach or visiting an Okinawan senior citizen's home means the U.S. military presence is altruistic. Then you quote, Robert Eldridge, a former military public affairs official, saying in the wake of Rena's death, if you get the community relations right, the politics fall in, fall in place. What does that tell you about the way in which the military views the Okinawan people? Well, I think, I think as I explore in the book, you know, a lot of the success of the military presence there relies on the viewpoints of the local population. And so you know, you need to win over hearts and minds to have these bases function smoothly there. And so a lot of it depends on, you know, forming relationships with the local population. And that's what I saw in a lot of cases is that locals have um, 
intimate and complex relationships with the military presence in some way. So they might work on base, they might work around a base, they might have friends who are in the military, they might date American soldiers, marry American soldiers. And so all of these personal ties really help them feel more positively to the military presence. And so if, if you have that going on, right, it's a lot harder to close these bases. So how successful has the U.S. military been in winning hearts and minds on the island? And is that the local political divide being pro-base or anti-base? I definitely saw a generational divide in that, in that the older, many older Okinawans might feel more strongly against the bases, whereas younger people have a more ambivalent um, feeling toward the bases. And I think that's partly because they they didn't you know experience the war, they didn't experience the occupation, they were born into the situation, and they might appreciate a lot about it. They might like that there's the American influence and that it kind of feels like a more international environment that they might be able to get a job on base and um, you know go to the movie theater and um, speak in English there and you know date Americans and all of that. So. You know, the divide I saw was really um, between the different generations. You add that the public affairs, the military's public affairs man, Eldridge, called for more publicity of servicemen in Okinawa doing good things. What he didn't say was that he also believed in publicity of Okinawa and activists doing bad things. Eldridge reportedly had been fired from his position with the Marines for leaking a tape of a prominent activist illegally stepping on base before being arrested. The tape ended up in the hands of Japanese neo-nationalists, the far right. Why would neo-nationalists be against those who are trying to kick occupiers off Japanese soil because that sounds like a very nationalist thing to do. Why wouldn't they be siding with the protesters? I know it's, it's very, it's very surprising and like, and very kind of difficult to understand, but there are members of the far right who are, you know, nationalists in Japan who do support the U S military presence. Um, and you know, there are others who don't, but, um, in this case, you know they they are they are they are supporting the U.S. military presence. Uh, you write that for anti-base activists, the most powerful story is a rape—a rape of an Okinawan woman or girl by a U.S. serviceman—snaps people awake in ways a helicopter crash, chemical spill, barroom brawl, or threatened coral reef can't. Why is that? Why does an individual crime that victimizes an individual become a more powerful story than an environmental disaster, even something like climate change? Right. Yeah. Well, I think we, we, we care about stories, right? We care about specifics and people. And if we can, you know, learn about something through someone's story, maybe we'll care more. And certainly that's why and I wanted to write this book is because I, I, you know, I didn't, I wasn't hearing as many individual stories coming from Okinawa as I thought we should hear. We hear, you know, about the politics, but we don't really know who are these people who are living around the bases. What are their stories? And I, you know, I'm hoping that once you learn about people's individual stories, you might start caring about the larger situation as well. 
And you write that a rape captures the imagination of the public and media because it's a story in our bones, a metaphor we understand right away without explanation. We're used to uh, anthropomorphizing geography in this sexualized, feminized way. We talk about virgin land, Mother Earth, rape of Nanking. When a U.S. serviceman rapes a woman in Okinawa, Okinawa becomes the innocent girl, kidnapped, beaten, held down, and violated by a thug United States. Tokyo is the pimp who enabled the abuse. Having let the thug in, soon no one is talking about the real victim or what happened. They're using the rape as the special anti-base weapon that it is. Have activists then, and I, I don't mean this in a negative way, have activists then successfully weaponized race against U.S. military occupation of Okinawa in response to U.S. propaganda showing service members doing good things while also sharing images of protesters being bad? Does rape undermine that propaganda? Is it a solution to that propaganda? Well, I think it's a very powerful tool that activists have is, is using this metaphor of rape. And I think, as I wrote, that it's something that people understand right away, so you don't have to explain it. Um, and, you know, I don't, I think it's also, it is emblematic of a larger um, you know, issue and pro- very pervasive problem of sexual violence that is going on and has been going on for a long time. So, you know, I think the story is complicated, right? And there are, of course, many, many, many service members who are a positive presence on the island, and there are also these um, terrible crimes that happen. So, you know, either side is, is missing part of the story. You write that maybe what happened to Rena could make a difference. It all depended on the details of her story as they would be reported and revealed. Now, this puts the activist in the horrible position of knowing that the more horrible the details, the more effective the story or rape will be on ending U.S. military bases from occupying Okinawa. During your research, did you speak with anti-base activists who may have pointed out this dilemma, this contradiction, this horrible idea that the better, the best thing for the anti-base movement is for this crime to be awful? Um, certainly nobody is hoping for these crimes to happen. And, and everyone, I think, would agree that, you know, that the best outcome is that these crimes do not happen. Um, but, you know, actually what I was writing about there and the, the details of the story, a lot of it depends on um, the woman and if people can point a finger at her and blame her for the crime or not. And there's this need to have a pure victim. So in 1995, when this um, 12-year-old schoolgirl was raped you know, brutally by three servicemen, that was an incident that everyone could really agree, you know, this is horrible. It was not her fault at all and could rally around it, you know, but there have been other cases where some people are asking, you know, well, why was she out so late at night? Why was she wearing what she was wearing? Right. And so if you can try to um, point fingers at her that way, blame the victim, then people can try to neutralize and say, Maybe this wasn't so bad, right? Maybe she was at fault as well. What does this application of victim blaming reveal to you about those who do support the U.S. military on the island, especially when the victim blaming involves the sexualizing, the sexualization of rape? I'm sorry, you cut out for a minute there. So, 
Uh, let me, I'll, all right, I'll repeat my question. What does this application of victim blaming reveal to you about those who do support the U.S. military on the island, especially when the victim blaming involves the sexualization, the sexualizing of rape? Well, I think, you know, I think that um, to me, this whole idea of a pure victim is, is really problematic. I think it also, to me, it tells a larger story of Okinawa in that, you know, many people there are in some way tied up with the bases and, um, you know, they don't feel they're not they're not victims, right? They're, they aren't victims of the military presence and they may be actively seeking relationships with the U.S. military presence. So it's not this black and white situation that, that people want and it is a more complicated story. And I think kind of this impulse to make the victim either pure or not pure, is, is, to me that was part of this larger discussion of whether, you know, showing that, you know, the local population is more tied up in the bases than a lot of people like to imagine. You write that because Rena's 1995 rape was so brutal, the victim so young and a schoolgirl, the epitome of innocence and titillation in the Japanese imagination, that incident made the biggest political impact. Even a murder didn't trump it. There aren't any no murder, no base stickers. For instance, a few months before the 1995 rape, a U.S. serviceman on Okinawa beat his Japanese girlfriend to death with a hammer. He hit her head more than 20 times or something, veteran journalist Shiomi Sumida told you. It was such a vicious murder, she said. But she also added that hardly any reporters attended the trial. The woman's death didn't mobilize tens of thousands of people. The woman's death isn't in Okinawa history books and museums. The woman was dating the soldier. And she was from mainland Japan. She wasn't a good symbol. Now, last time when we were speaking with Mitu Sanyal about her new book on rape, I quoted her writing saying rape is a charged issue for all of us with far more impact on our lives than any other crime. So I want to ask you the same question I posed to Mitu. Why does rape have more of an impact on us than even the most brutal of murders? Yeah, that was something I was I wanted to explore as well. And I don't to me, it seems like the murder should, you know, galvanize people just as much, if not more. Right. But I think I, I mean, I think part of it is this combination of, of sex and violence that gets people's attention, that gets people to care. It's you know titillating in a way. And, um, and I think it's more Again, it can be used more as a metaphor for the larger political situation. So, you know, Japan and the U.S. aren't killing Okinawa, but they're raping Okinawa. They're taking away something from Okinawa, violating Okinawan land, right? Um, And so it can be used as this larger metaphor in a way that maybe murder can't. I have. We've been having all these very difficult and challenging conversations on rape, so I want to get your opinions about a couple of other things that people have said on the show recently in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Back in December, we spoke with Sahalia Abdullali. She is author of What We Talk About When We Talk About Rape. Sahalia's January 2013 op-ed in the New York Times, I Was Wounded, My Honor Wasn't, Broke Readership Records. Sahalia describes sexual assault survivors' silence, the power of speaking openly about rape and its aftermath in challenging rape culture 
a society that accepts sexual violence at large. What impact can talking about rape, what impact can talking about rape in Okinawa and making it an issue in the anti-base campaign, what impact do you think that could have overall on sexual violence in Okinawa? I, I mean, I'm, I hope it can have a great impact because many in the current situation, many people do not feel safe or comfortable coming forward to report sexual violence. And that's something that definitely has to change in Okinawa. And, you know, there are some really brave women who are coming forward and, and talking about it um, and facing a lot of blowback. But I think they're hoping that, you know, by doing that, other women will start to feel more comfortable coming forward as well. Um, it's happening, you know, nationally in Japan as well. This, um, this, you know, there's some been some figures who are talking about it in, on a national level and, again, facing, you know, at the expense of a lot of um, blowback and threats to their personal safety. So I think maybe things are changing slowly in Japan, but definitely, you know, not on the same level as we're seeing in other places through the Me Too movement. It hasn't really caught on in Japan yet in the same way. Back in 2015, we spoke with filmmaker Leslie Udwin, who did the documentary India's Daughter about the infamous rape of Jyoti Singh, which led to protests challenging patriarchy. And not only in India, but global patriarchy. Leslie told us, we as society must stand up and take responsibility for these rapists. They are not other than us. They are of our making. They are not rotten apples in a barrel. The barrel is rotten. The barrel rots the apples. What impact can talking about rape in Okinawa have on not only patriarchy, but misogyny, even maybe globally? Has making rape an issue in the anti-base campaign also led to discussions of, if not campaigns against patriarchy and misogyny in Okinawa? Yeah, I think um, I think it, it it has led to questions, too, about, you know, Okinawa and, and Japanese society as well, right, that maybe this is not just an issue with the U.S. military. It extends to um, the local society as well. And, you know, why don't women feel comfortable coming forward to report rape, right? Um, what, how is the society still patriarchal and how can we change that? And so I do think it's, it's led to this broader discussion. And, you know, one activist um, that I talked to in my book, she says that if, you know, if all women did feel comfortable coming forward to report rape in Okinawa, you know, how could the bases survive if there were, if we knew about every rape that happened as a result of these bases, there might be such an outcry that, you know, the bases would have to close. As I was saying, uh, I might have been mentioning this earlier, at least Okinawa has a population of a little over 1.4 million people. And from the research I did, approximately 25,000 U.S. service members for people here in Chicago, where our population is nearly twice that. Imagine if there were 50,000 foreign troops based in the city, four times the current number of Chicago police. Why is it so important for the United States to have so much military based in Okinawa? Well, that's, you know, different people have very different opinions about that, right? But some people say it's it's a very strategic location and that, you know, the bases need to be there because you can easily access many different places in the region, right? But, um, you know, I would say that that's, you, you, there's no way you need all of these bases on this little island, as you just described, right? And that it's more a result of this historical 
imbalance, power imbalance between Okinawa and mainland Japan, where, you know, nobody wants a foreign base in their backyard, right? So if you can put that somewhere else, you're going to do that probably. And so they end up in this place that has potentially the least political power. Now, we keep hearing from President Trump that whether it's in NATO or wherever it is, that the United States contributes far more to the safety and security and stability, the national security of, of each and every country that they are, have military bases. But in fact, as you point out in your book, the United States is not losing money on their military bases in Japan, no matter what President Trump says. How is the United States incentivized to keep military bases in Japan? So Japan actually pays billions of dollars per year to host U.S. military bases. And I think that's something a lot of people don't know about. They, you know, they pay for the electricity on base and they pay for um, a lot of, you know, local workers' salaries and, um, you know, to the point where the U.S. has to pay little more than um, service members' salaries. So there's great financial incentive to have bases in Japan. Uh, so um, Japan has a total of the mainland. Japan has a total of 25,000 U.S. service members based there. And there's 25,000 based in Okinawa. Does Japan have similar problems with U.S. service members and other base workers committing violence against Japanese women? Do Japanese women face the same threat and potential for threat as women on Okinawa do? You know, I think wherever there are U.S. military bases, there are these same issues playing out. And so I would say, yes, I think, you know, there must be those same issues on mainland Japan. I think what's unique about Okinawa is, as you mentioned, the concentration of bases on this one little island. And, um, you know, it's really hard to escape the U.S. military presence if you want to, because it takes up, you know, something like, um, you know, 19 percent of the island. There's this sense of American innocence in our foreign policy as it is deployed around the world. What would you say to someone who argues that the U.S. military is occupying Okinawa or has a military base in Okinawa for all the right reasons, that the U.S. is there for Okinawa's own good, whether they realize it or not, that this is merely charitable service without any reward, a sacrifice by the U.S. for people on the other side of the world who most of us don't even know? That's how nice and innocent we are. How would you respond to someone who said this is all U.S. generosity fueled by our innocence? Well, I would say read my book and, um, you know, you would realize that there, the U.S. military presence affects local people in very complex and profound ways. And some of them are positive. And that's and I, those are I really wanted to include those positive stories in the book. But, of course, there are, are also many negative ways that people are impacted. And so, you know, we need to know about that and. As you said, we have, you know, bases all over the globe, at least 700 in every region of the world. And what do we actually know about these bases and how they're affecting local people? And so, you know, I'm really hoping with this book that we can, you know, I can transport readers to this one place and tell them their stories, both the good and the bad, and that at least we can start thinking about what does our military presence abroad mean and what does it mean for local people who live around these spaces? 
You write that although the Constitution dictates that land, sea, and air forces will never be maintained, that's the Japanese Constitution, Japan has had a military since 1950. The the Japan Self-Defense Forces, SDF, is now one of the most powerful militaries in the world with capabilities that have been expanding under Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. The Constitution still limits the role of the SDF, but Abe seeks to change that with revisions to Article 9. Can Prime Minister Abe... If he wanted to kick the U.S. military out of Japan, does he have that ability or are his hands tied due to the 1950 treaty with the U.S.? Well, I mean, I think he's I'm not sure if he wants to do that right now, but I think I think what he's looking to do is um, expand the role of the Japanese military. Right. Um, And, you know, do away with this Article 9, um, which prohibits them from having a military, even though, as I, as I write that, you know, in all, in essence, they do have a military. Um, so I think, you know, that's kind of been his focus is to expand the capabilities and move away from this um, peace constitution that's a legacy of World War II. And you write about this invisibility of these military bases, whether it's by people on the mainland Japan and the bases being in Okinawa, or here in the United States, the invisibility of our military bases all over the world. You write this invisibility is true for most Americans. The few dozen bases in Okinawa are a key part of the United States global empire of bases, at least 700 military installments around the world from Belgium to Honduras, Egypt to Mozambique, Colombia to Greece, Portugal and Spain. Is our lack of knowledge about U.S. military bases around the world, is it our fault? Do we purposely and with intent actively choose to ignore U.S. military operations overseas? Or in some way, is this information kept from the public? Do we choose to turn a blind eye or do we simply not know because the information is kept from us? Well, one interesting fact in, I found in my research is that the, the Pentagon doesn't even know the exact number of U.S. military bases abroad, right? So in that sense, maybe there is this deliberate um, not knowing about this presence, right? If we don't know about it, we can't be responsible for it. Um, but I think also, I think, you know, Americans could find out information, right? Could seek out information if they wanted, but maybe that's, you know, not, um, maybe people are choosing not to know again, because if you don't know about something, then you don't have to be responsible. You don't have to care about what's happening. You write that the bases may have arrived by force, but they have stayed because the complex relationships formed with people living outside the fences of those gates. The truth is that when Okinawans choose not to cooperate, when they decide to challenge the U.S. military presence, Their actions have the power to rattle the whole system. What whole system? The military congressional industrial complex? Uh, Could could a victory in Okinawa against U.S. military bases cause a ripple effect with locals around the world challenging the existence of foreign U.S. military bases in their country? So what what do you think might be the outcome if there was a challenge to this military presence in Okinawa that was successful? I think that, you know, I think definitely it would fuel other people in other countries and give them hope that they could have a similar outcome. And, you know, I I saw that when I was there in Okinawa, I saw people, there was um, a gathering of activists from all over the world, from, 
you know, Guam, Hawaii, Puerto Rico, the Philippines who met in Okinawa and learned about what Okinawans are doing to resist the U.S. military presence, especially this um, new base that that is being built that against the wishes of the local population. And so, you know, they learned about how exactly Okinawans are resisting this. There are every day there are um, Okinawans out there at the construction site sitting in and um, trying to block um, construction trucks from coming and they're out there on kayaks. This new base is um, going to be built on this um, beautiful bay and the plan is to fill it in with um, sand and gravel and build this mammoth new base. And so, um, you know, kayakers are out there trying to stop the construction. So, you know, I saw people coming to learn about this and I think, you know, Okinawa has a lot to teach other people around the world about how, you know, what resistance might look like. And I think a victory there would give a lot of people hope for their own situation. So how bad is U.S. military presence for Okinawa's economy? It seems like, for instance, this military base that they're going to be putting on a beach. This beach could be used for tourism. And Okinawa, in the way you describe it, is absolutely stunning and beautiful. And you would think that their tourism industry would be far more successful, potentially, and at least more sustainable than having U.S. military bases on the island. So how good is the U.S. are U.S. military bases for the Okinawan economy, and how much do they distract the Okinawan economy from a different path, from a different way of earning money through tourism instead of military uh, embroilments? Um, they definitely are inhibiting, you know, other industries that could take place, you know, like tourism. Um, there's a beautiful forest that I visited there, um, you know, extremely biodiverse, all these um, endangered and or endemic species, species that you know, haven't even been discovered. It's um, this dense forest and um, it was up to be nominated for a world heritage site. You know, it's that valuable. And, um, you know, in the middle of this forest, there is um, a U.S. military jungle warfare training center. So um, service members go there to train and simulate having warfare in a jungle. Um, They've also cut um, um, halo pads, you know, out of the forest and there's aircraft flying over this forest. So, you know, it was a great irony between this you know, this really pristine, beautiful place and then, um, you know, warfare training that's happening right there as well. So many Okinawans say that, you know, we could um, develop, we could have a much better future, more sustainable future, as you said, if the military presence was gone and we could um, pursue this um, maybe ecotourism route. And um, economists today say that, the base presence accounts for only 5% of the local economy. So, um, you know, to close the bases, perhaps there could be much, um, much more room there to grow. As, as I said, it's now the poorest prefecture in the country. So, um, you know, the bases aren't helping the, the prefecture really thrive. 
We have been speaking with award-winning writer Akemi Johnson, author of Night in the American Village, Women in the Shadow of the U.S. Military Bases in Okinawa. You can find out more about Akemi at akemijohnson.com. That's A-K-E-M-I. And you can follow her on Twitter at Akemi Johnson. One last question for you, Akemi. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is always the question from hell, the question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Or our audience is going to hate your response. You write that at the former Japanese Navy headquarters, we saw pitted walls where officers had detonated grenades, committing suicide after learning of their defeat. This is at the uh, Battle of Okinawa Memorial that is on the island. I thought back to my Pacific War course, the shocking testimonies that had first pushed Okinawa into my mind. Okinawan families had been pressured by the Japanese military to take their lives, too, in an improvised frenzy of killing in anticipation of the United States occupying the island. Schoolgirls had begged soldiers for their own grenades, wanting to die rather than risk losing their virtue to American brutes. Did the Japanese inculcate a fear of sexually depraved Americans within the Okinawan population during occupation? And if they did, how accurate were those warnings? Well, I think... I think that um, there was a fear that there would be, you know, that the U.S. military <clears throat> was going to make a policy out of, you know, raping, killing, naming the local population, um, and that nobody would survive, right? And and what people found was very different from that. The the occupying forces provided medical care. They provided shelter, food. Um, these are things that the Japanese military hadn't provided to Okinawans during the battle. So I think the, this idea of the Americans as these devil beasts who would, um, you know, murder everyone would, did not come to fruition. And many people were very pleasantly surprised at how the occupying force treated locals. But at the same time, as I talked about, there has been a very um, serious issue of sexual violence that has been maybe less well-known. So a lot of people might feel that it's not an issue, but because it's remained hidden. So at the same time, um, you know, on some level, those predictions were true. Akemi, I really appreciate you being on our show this week. You can find out more about Akemi at akemijohnson.com. This is an amazing piece of writing, and apparently you're an award-winning writer because it looks like it. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. (laughs) Thank you so much. Take care. Live from the nightmare of want, this is hell. Coming up on this week's This is Hell, we'll learn all about abolitionist socialist feminism. We'll go deep on force-feeding U.S. prisoners. And Jeff Dorchin has a moment of truth this week. Jeff thinks about artificial intelligence and how stupid it is. We'll probably have some more uh, listener feedback for you. We'll keep reminding you about our upcoming fourth annual 20th anniversary and listener appreciation party happening at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. On Saturday, July 27th, make sure you set a reminder, put it on your calendar. Of course, we'll have all your responses from this week's question from hell. We want to thank some listeners for sharing This Is Hell online, some others for supporting the show at thisishell.com when they click on support. And we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. If you want to make certain capitalism doesn't become This Is Hell's pimp, support This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. When you do, we will send you a gift you can pick from uh, from at our site. Again, thisishell.com and then click on support. 
For you Patreon patrons, you get all of those gifts for a $5 discount. Thanks this week goes out to our newest supporter to show their religious-like commitment to This Is Hell, Pete B. And you know who I'm talking about, right? Pete. And to two other longtime tithers, Kilter and Adrian. Thanks to everyone who supported This Is Hell this week and in the coming days, weeks, months, and years of the Trump administration. Your support will be needed more than ever. If you want to be thanked on air, support This Is Hell and get a This Is Hell coffee mug, t-shirt, and or tote bag, go to thisishell.com. Click on support. Abolitionist Socialist Feminism. Sounds pretty good, right? The combining of people working with one another to end racism and misogyny, to fight together, arms linked, against hate in all its forms, is a very, very admirable goal. So why hasn't anyone connected abolition, socialism, and feminism before? We'll learn all about it and why its time may have come when we speak in a few minutes to activist, political scholar, and feminist writer Zila Eisenstein, author of Abolitionist, Socialist, Feminism, Radicalizing the Next Revolution. Zila is Distinguished Scholar of Anti-Racist Feminist Political Theory at Ithaca College in New York. You can find out more about Zila at zilaeisenstein.wordpress.com. And before we get into the question from hell, I just again want to thank our Patreon patrons for subscribing to this is hell at patreon.com slash this is hell because <clears throat> most of, mm, I'd say 60% of the acoustic panels were put in today and I'm no longer inside of a fort that I built out of the acoustic panels, which turned into a sweat box during the show. So I want to thank each and every one of you for my lack of perspiration during this week's show. Okay, let's read your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, What's on the bottom of your list of things to abolish? What's on the bottom of your list of things to abolish? So keep in mind, it has to actually get to your list of things to abolish. It's just the last one on your list. All replies are going to be read on air right now by Alex. This week's winner gets the book we are about to discuss, Zila Eisenstein's Abolitionist Socialist Feminism. Again, the question from hell is, what's on the bottom of your list of things to abolish? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, to still have a chance at winning this week's prize. Again, Zila Eisenstein's Abolitionist Socialist Feminism. Alex, you have all the responses to this week's question from hell, because... Uh, what is on the bottom of your list of things to abolish... Jack B. says, gas station coffee. Dan T. says, the vegan slash vegetarian slash omnivore debate we should all be eating. The rich. <laughs> Benjamin C. says, free internet porn. Ben C. To abolish. Free. Mm, why, okay, is that, well. why is that on his list? I don't get it. Gregory M. says, the pineapple on pizza debate. <laughs> Evan said that? Uh, that was Gregory M. <laughs> okay. uh, Evan D. says, Dungeons and Dragons. Hail Satan. <laughs> Fabio L. says, the list itself. <laughs> what is on the bottom of your list of things to abolish? Max I. says, meth squirrel. 
That's, and, there's not a comma uh, or an and. It's just, I guess, there's perhaps one squirrel named the meth squirrel. Uh, so a guy apparently gave meth to a squirrel over the last couple of days, and it's now a video that has gone viral. And why you would give meth to a squirrel? Probably because if you are a meth user, you have ready and easy access to squirrels. Uh, we should probably abolish that guy, not the <laughs> damn squirrel. Chandler H. says, anime. Tom D. says, this is blank style ad copy for anything that isn't this is hell. <laughs> Bob W. says, those little adhesive labels on fruit and vegetables. <laughs> yeah, I know it's an avocado. <laughs> I like how you got a response to it saying that those are imp important labels to have on avocado. Uh, those are, yeah, you can eat those too, by the way. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Because uh, they're on food, so they have to be sort of, I know that from composting. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm wrong. Who knows? Uh, maybe try it at home and let me know. Uh, Marty P. says, CBD-infused wine for single moms. <laughs> Marty P.? Yeah. John K. says, the non-response, I'm good, and the non-explanation explanation, it is what it is. <laughs> also, that's a very good question. Flattery will get you nowhere. Answer the damn question. Hey, uh, on This Is Hell, we love hearing that's a very good question. So, <laughs> uh, What is on the bottom of your list of things to abolish? Warren L. says, puppies. <laughs> Astrid N. says, snakes, except those in the government. Them's got to go. Pammy H. says, socialist feminists. <laughs> Joshua B. says, willful lack of self-awareness. People cover themselves in all sorts of BS facades to justify or cancel out foolishness, selfishness, and generally thoughtless behavior. I'm taking that personally, Joshua B. <laughs> uh, Gorilla G. says, triumphantly crossing items off my to-abolish list. <laughs> I'll do that last one with a flourish. Adam M. said, spaghetti ice. Uh, E-I-S, I might be pronouncing that wrong, it's German, and he sent me, and so if you are listening at home, uh, please go to this comment and look at the link that Adam M. sent um, to a German spaghetti restaurant that has some of the most horrifying spaghetti menu items, uh, like spaghetti kiwi, <laughs> uh, spaghetti yogurt. Uh, it is it is a nightmare. It is one of the scariest things I've ever seen. Adam M is quickly running to the head of the pack here. Logo designer Adam M. Uh, spaghetti Cooey is is truly a nightmare. You take a look at it. It's a dessert spaghetti, I think, and it's also German, which makes it scarier. <laughs> yeah. uh, Dennis H says internet paywalls. Angus S says this is hell. What's on the bottom of your to abolish list? Lucy Walker says fake utility embellishments on clothes, like zippers and buttons that do nothing and pockets that don't open. It's low on the list, but it's still got to go. Wait, Lucy. Uh, Lucy W. Fake utility embellishments. Embellishments. Mike M says, "Ooh, there's a booger on the bottom of my to abolish list." <laughs> Ugh, Mike. Nick A says, "The very bottom edge of the paper, and past that is the pen with which I wrote the list." Joe S says, "Tie-dyed Grateful Dead T-shirts on overweight middle-aged suburbanites. It's not critical to save mankind, but it would help them overcome the Peter Pan syndrome they exist in." I totally agree with Grateful Dead T-shirts, tie-dyed T-shirts. Um, you don't like those dancing see, bears? No. You don't no. like that skull with the lightning no. bolt on it? No. They're pretty cool shirts, actually. <laughs> uh, finally, what is on the bottom of your list of things to abolish? Uh, Mark C said, "Embalming fluid." <laughs> <laughs> Go figure. I don't know why it would be embalming fluid. I'm really not too sure. My response to the question from hell, what's on the bottom of your list of things to abolish? There's lots of stuff that didn't make my things to abolish list, like every vice I partake in. And there are quite a few, too many to name. So it's got to be something that would make the list, but has the least priority. So it's got to be 
N.A. beer, non-alcoholic beer. Why? Because first, it's horrible. It sucks. It doesn't taste like any beer I've ever had. Second, if you are an alcoholic and miss the taste of beer so bad, you must have an N.A. beer. Quit deluding yourself. That crap does not taste like any beer you ever drank when you were an alcoholic, even though you are still a recovering alcoholic, I guess. And if it does, then you drank watered-down, lousy beer. So how the hell did you become an alcoholic in the first place? Were you drinking like 20 beers a night? How do you find the time? And if anything is a gateway drug, it must be a facsimile of the drug you are addicted to. Repackaged without the part that led to your addiction. You don't offer heroin addicts Avitan, which has close to, close to the same effects as smack. And giving that to someone who has a built-in taste for China is freaking cruel. But who the hell really drinks any beer anymore? So I guess any beer is on the bottom of my list of things to abolish. But it did make the list. So let's see. That makes this week's winner. Boy, meth squirrel is good. I like meth squirrel. I like CBD infused wine for moms. Spaghetti ice just because it's so bizarre. But I am going to go with Lucy W and fake utility embellishments, things like zippers that don't work and pockets that don't exist. Why do they put pockets on women's sleeves that are not pockets? They look like pockets, but they're not pockets. So Lucy W, you have won Zila Eisenstein's abolitionist socialist feminism, which we'll be speaking with Zila about momentarily. Thanks to everyone for coming out to our weekly meet and greet, which is more a drink and think. This is Hell Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. Drop by, drink, hang out, watch me drink, get some free This is Hell advertising stickers and free show-related books. Last week, it was great to see Andrew, who came down from Evanston. Dan, who outdid Andrew and ventured all the way from Rockford, Illinois, up by the Illinois-Wisconsin border. Also, thanks to Wally, Leo, Brian, Joel, Ronaldo, Micah, Johnny, John, Jordan, Elliot, Shelley, and everyone else I can't remember because 12 hours later, 12 hours after last week's office hours, my back went out, as did all of my memory, from the previous 24 hours. You can join us every Wednesday evening at Carrie's Lounge from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. However... Patreon patrons, tonight, Thursday night, this evening, if you are listening to the live stream, immediately following this here to our Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers, we are having a special office hours, that's right, on a Thursday night beginning at 9 p.m. as soon as we are done with the show. Then next week, we'll be back to our regularly scheduled, regularly, oh man, I totally totally sound like Tom Brokaw every time I say regularly and particularly. Then next week, we'll be back to our regularly scheduled Wednesday night office hours, which begin earlier at 6. So if you normally can't make it out on a Wednesday night or you want to go out later, join us this evening for a special Thursday night version of This Is How Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, beginning at 9 p.m. and happening until my girly calls the bar and tells me to go home. If you are an artist or you know an artist, that would be a welcome addition to our annual This Is Hell, This Is Art show during our anniversary and listener appreciation party on July 27th. 
email me your or their art, and we'll definitely consider it to be part of the 2019 show. Again, email me your art or someone's art you like to chuck at thisishell.com, and they could be part of this year's annual This Is Art show that happens during our anniversary party every year and consistently features work by listeners of This Is Hell. We're also looking for musicians to perform as well. So if you are an artist or a musician or you want to suggest artists or musicians to take part in our anniversary show, anniversary party this year at Carrie's on July 27th, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, we'll learn all about abolitionist socialist feminism and try to figure out why nobody ever thought of it before and what that says about American political thought. We'll discuss force-feeding prisoners in the U.S., which is far more disgusting than you can ever imagine. Prisoners who are protesting their treatment in solitary confinement, a protest that happens way more than you think. And Jeff Dorchin has a moment of truth. This week, Jeff thinks about artificial intelligence and how stupid it is. We'll also keep reminding you about our upcoming fourth annual 20th anniversary and listener appreciation party happening at Carrie's Lounge on Saturday, July 27th. Make sure it is in your calendar. Of course, we'll uh, have, well, tell you, we, of course, we will want to thank some listeners for sharing This Is Hell online and some others for supporting This Is Hell at thisishell.com when they click on support, as well as what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. And if we have time, more of your listener feedback sent to us at chuck at thisishell.com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Alex, do we have her on the line? Excellent. Uh, the planet's on fire. So, yes, this is hell. Abolitionist socialist feminism sounds like the most delicious, complimentary flavors of political thought. At least it sounds that way. Here to help us understand what abolitionist socialist feminism is, why it's needed more than ever, and how come nobody ever thought of it before activist, political scholar, and feminist writer Zila Eisenstein is author of Abolitionist Socialist Feminism, Radicalizing the Next Revolution. Zila is Distinguished Scholar of Anti-Racist Feminist Political Theory at Ithaca College in New York. And you can find out more about Zila at zilaeisenstein.wordpress.com and follow Zila on Twitter at Z Eisenstein. You begin with what you call a few foundational queries. You ask why socialism, why socialism. You then reply, everyone deserves to live without a fear of hunger and homelessness and illness and unemployment and disability. The profit motive destroys humanity. A start towards socialism would be a universal livable wage and health care for all. Why do you believe socialism will end the fear of hunger, homelessness, illness, unemployment, disability? Why do you not fear the kind of socialism that those on the right fear, that is, a dismal, oppressive police state like those of the former Soviet Union and Soviet-occupied nations, or even the police state of China? Why do you see this? Why do you see hope for uh, that kind of socialism instead of the fear that those on the right see? Well, the hope that that I think of here and and sustains a commitment to socialism is a commitment to an idea that your 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 vision is for humanity and for a humanism of every human body. 
So my, the notion of socialism is not to look backwards at what the mistakes are, but forwards as to why it is, why it has the capacity to bring a different kind of world forward. And its ideas and commitments, uh, and, and the, and the, um, positive struggles that have been part of it seems to me that we have no choice but to go in that direction when capitalism is just sucking uh, the world in terms of any possibility of health, happiness, and um, and fulfillment. So, my, you know, I'm I, the the way that you ask the question puts me kind of in a defensive posture as to you know why why am I not worried that mistakes will be made, and um, I think we live in a moment where the present is what I fear, and um, and the future is what I am completely committed to. So um, I don't know how else to kind of open the possibility that when you just see the fact that we have millions of people um, as refugees and homeless and uh, in cages, even in our own country, uh, just trying to find a way of living with a kind of sustenance and happiness, um, socialism in terms of articulated commitments seems to be the creative way to go, because the commitment of socialism is to really nurture human beings. And that's actually not the commitment of capitalism. The, The commitment of capitalism is to create profit and opportunities for those who succeed in the, in quotes, race of life. But, um, you know, Adam Smith's notion there is it's a race, and we all know how many people win a race. You know, most people are losers within that very construction. So... That's and um, I just think we have a better possibility <laughs> with, with socialism. <laughs> That's an amazing response, Zila. That's really fantastic. So uh, you uh, you write that you ask also why feminism, and your answer is because neither sex nor gender should determine one's life choices, and because misogyny and heteropatriarchy continually seek to control and regulate women's bodies, we. My, or my use of the term woman always is inclusive, inclusive of trans, gender variant, queer, non-binary identities. It is a specifically universal embrace. And this is something I want to make sure that you expand on so our audience can understand this better. How can feminism be universal? How can feminism be about creating a more fair and just world for everybody, not just hetero women? Well, the the commitments. I mean, the the commit the privileging of hetero women comes from a construction of misogyny and one that uh, is privileging heterosexism because it's out of that construction that you get the um, the very gendered system that is already exclusionary and hierarchical. 
so the i mean what's what's wonderful about the moment that we live in is we're living at at a time where it is possible to imagine a, a bigger more inclusive notion of what what it what any human body means and particularly because patriarchy and misogyny are so rooted in the control of female bodies the the minute you start to open that to multiple possibilities you radically de- democratize what your feminism and what you, you know what your feminism can can mean now i also make or try to make clear in the book that there are many feminisms and um some feminisms uh, clearly are exclusive uh and have been along class lines along race lines that's why i'm arguing for a very particular kind of feminism and that is one that is both socialist and anti white supremacy so that that notion is is to say that also part of the book is that you we want to multiply always whatever the political construction is that we are thinking from and the the more multiple and complex it is the the more universal so i am asking for a kind of inversion of of what normally is understood that the idea that if you specify something you're being exclusionary so you know historically people would say i'm not a feminist i'm a humanist you know humanist is though that is the bigger more inclusive construction my point is the more specific you are in your starting point for thinking politically which means about the distribution of power and hierarchy the more specific you are the more democratic and inclusive and therefore universal you can be So I mean liberal uh, democracy uh, bourgeois democracy is premised on the idea that every everyone is an individual with human rights those are all universalized constructs right but what we've seen historically is that they have been you know the notion of who is an individual is enormously exclusionary so I'm asking for a flip you know be as specific as you can be and you will be more democratic more inclusive in in your thinking and um in a different book i wrote many years ago called the color of gender i argued that if you want a democratic society think of that individual as a black woman who is pregnant meet the needs of that body and nobody's excluded start with a white male body and you got exclusions at the get go so you know that's kind of an earlier construction of what this book is arguing which is it's it's just absolutely time to see the multiplicity that capitalism is never just capitalism and misogyny is never just misogyny and white supremacy never just that 
And why is it so difficult to keep the three of them together in order to really come to an honest construct of democracy, one that, that really excludes no one? So what do we miss in our understanding of feminism when we see feminism as just one monolithic feminism? Do we does that even does that lead to us having a misunderstanding for instance of why women may vote Republican, why women might vote for Donald Trump? What do we miss in our understanding of feminism when we see it only as one monolithic feminism? Well, you, you know, you just aren't seeing the complexity of um, of political variety to begin with, right? So, I mean, just to the, you know, to the extent that you have even multiple meanings of gender, you're going to need multiple meanings of of feminism. But the politically, again, historically in this country in, or in Western uh, societies, the Feminism always was made equivalent to mainstream feminism, which meant liberal feminism, which meant bourgeois or capitalist feminism. So then feminism, what does it mean? It means opportunity for women in within the class structure but it also the the notion here of opportunity or equality women's equality um what is women's uh, women's equality with whom and what so i mean which man do you want to be equivalent with you know uh, an incarcerated uh person of color um a rich black person um a middle class white man i mean what so what does that mean so all i'm trying to say here to your question is that in order to really think through um we you know what 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 do we not see when we just have a singular notion of feminism the singular notion is usually the notion of feminism that supports the society already in place so um the you know my my meaning here is that when um the to think that Hillary Clinton represents uh, feminism and her notion of breaking the glass ceiling. You know, there are many of us more socialist radical feminists who say, forget the glass ceiling, let's get us out of the basement. Or what many of us are saying is, we need a feminism for the 99%, not for the 1%. So again, it's who are you looking at? Which women are you speaking about? You know, what is their race? What is their class? What is their uh, sexual preference? You know, the the idea here that, again, um, if you're not trying to homogenize women, which is necessary in order to enforce a, the political coding of, uh, of a particular construction of gender. You, you know, pretty the, much singular. You write, feminism must create access and freedom for all of our sexual and reproductive bodies. Reform, as in women's rights, is still threaded and structured through racist heteropatriarchy. So in the spirit of writer Mabe Segrist, queer all this as well. What happens to society when our racist heteropatriarchy, and you will not be surprised to know that my... 
Macintosh word program does not recognize that as part of its vocabulary. What happens to society when our racist heteropatriarchy is replaced by what Segrist calls queer all that as well? Should those who support the racist heteropatriarchy fear queering all this as well? Or does racist heteropatriarchy and queerness not operate in the same way that leads to a kind of supremacy and privilege for one group? Oh, yeah, no. I mean, the whole idea here, to, I mean, when you say queer it, you know, that, that really means open it, change it for the uh, broad expression of any and all sexual preferences. So what's to fear there? There's nothing to fear. You know? Yeah. I mean, really? Yeah. That, <laughs> there's nothing to fear. I mean, again, of course, we live in a, in a world right now where fear is kind of one of the, the major political um, centers for uh, Trumpism, and it is a fear of uh, uh, losing power, white uh, privilege, losing privilege of misogyny, um, and losing privilege as part of the 1%. So um, is, is there to fear for those who have accrued unfair power and privilege? Um, yeah, unless you understand that it's unfair, and then you have nothing to fear either. <laughs> then let's make a more just society. Zia, so, is there a connection between – I was just thinking about this while you were replying. Is there a connection yeah. be, between fear and what we see as more and more implementation of shame to try to get people to change their political views or their actions? Is there some link between the fact that we – and if you disagree with me, you can. I don't, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, that, that we're seeing yeah. a link – that we're seeing a rise in both fear and shame at the same time. Well, so what? What? What do you? Who? Who shame are you talking about? Just in general, when uh, trying to shame people into changing their behavior. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, again, I mean, um, shaming those in power, or just shaming anyone? Shaming those in power, I would say. Yeah. So, well, you know, you can't really shame people in power. (laughs) They have the power, (laughs) so you can't shame them. They don't give a, you know. So, I mean, that's really the ugliness of power, right? They don't have to care. They, their arrogance really doesn't even allow them to be shamed. You, you, you know, really? Trump, you think he's ever shamed? I don't think so. Or McConnell? I mean, you know, given the hearings yesterday, I would have just gone and shot myself, no? So, <laughs> you know, I mean, really, these guys, they, they, um, they believe in their power, and they fight for their power. And I think that the the people that I'm concerned about are people who do live in fear, but live in fear either people who do not have the power they need so that they are really in danger in our country right now. And there are people who live in fear and are in danger that there is no reason for them to have to live that way. And then there are those who have been mobilized by the Trump administration um, 
to be fearful of any kind of change because they already feel so tenuous in their lives. So I feel bad for them that fear is so much a part of their life because their lives are difficult. And then out of fear, they come to trust and believe um, in people who have no concern for them. But um, you also but the uh, issue... Go yeah, ahead. Go, go ahead. ahead. Sorry. Uh, I was just going to say, you also ask why abolitionism, and you reply, chattel slavery. And by the way, I just want to go back to one thing you said. The, the idea that people who in power cannot be shamed, I think, is something that activists should keep in mind because I have seen far too much in the last several months, last couple of years, uh, activists trying to use shame as a weapon to unseat those who are in power. And it doesn't seem to work. And obviously it doesn't work because of the logical construction that you just gave it. You ask why abolitionism and you, and you reply, chattel slavery has only been reformed and personhood and civil and human rights remain unfulfilled. What do you mean by chattel sl- slavery only being reformed Mm. well i mean really what we saw in i mean did you hear the um tahisi coats yesterday speaking on reparations by any chance yes i heard a bit of it yeah well so i mean basically you know of course what he was saying and what many people who have uh, fought on the whole issue of reparations is that chattel slavery i mean the legal construction of ownership of of um, enslaved people that no longer exists as a legal construction, but it still exists as an economic construction and a social construction and a political construction. If we look at the carceral system today, if we look at the uh, housing uh, inequities and the the uh, disparate difference. Um, that exists, particularly in terms of economic inequality along color lines. So um, the the argument that I was trying to make, and I mean, I didn't used to believe this quite as strongly as I do now. I mean, I always believed it a little bit, that reform, you know, reform was possible but never sufficient. And now, I mean, in the last decade, I've really started to wonder if many of the reforms that get put in place or don't get put in place just keep um, progressive people of whatever political bent um, they identify with just busy working to improve certain conditions, but that it is um, not possible to get at the root of the construction of power um, through reform. So, in other words, it is time to abolish white supremacy, not just reform it. The, the, the abolitionism um, of, of, this, of chattel slavery was a reforming of racism and white supremacy, but chattel slavery ended and white supremacy has continued. And I think you would probably agree with that, right? (laughs) Just the form of it is, is different. And I shouldn't say just, I mean, because there, you know, the, the horrificness of chattel slavery and the way that it, um, 
you know, any, any kind of change, uh, uh, limiting that, changing it, reforming it. I never want to make light of it, but its insufficiency is huge. We are speaking. We are speaking with activist, political scholar, and feminist writer Zila Eisenstein, author of *Abolitionist Socialist Feminism: Radicalizing the Next Revolution*. I'm sorry for interrupting. Oh no, no. So, anyway, the the I do think that we. I mean, part of the reason I wrote this particular book, which really just comes out of you know many decades worth of writing and activism was really the what felt like a unique possibility that we were at such a exposed moment of the the multiple systems of oppression and the inadequacy of picking at them that if we could come together, meaning the we here, the big we, the we of all different progressive groups. I mean, I don't think you have to be an abolitionist, socialist, feminist for me to work with you to really fight against this administration, particularly for 2020, and then make a revolution. <laughs> so my, I, the part of the book is really to, to say that there are new possibilities that I don't think have existed before because we may be living in a moment of what I term in the book taking the idea from physicists that we live in a moment of singularity where all of the changes that have been happening have come, that we are actually inhabiting a moment where all of those changes are at such a critical point of crisis um, that nothing before really makes any sense to us. You write and that I, I do yeah. You're right that we have a Klan president of sorts who is also a sexual yeah. predator as well as a capitalist apologist. What is happening with this new chaotic exposure? Some might say that fascism has become completely transparent. Is that a good thing? Did Trump making fascism transparent and easy for us all to see the best thing Trump has done as president? Or is it the worst thing he's done as president? Is he potentially causing fascism? Well, you know, I mean, I love the question, and I don't have the answer. All I'm going to say is I want to make it that it is, it is the gift we have been given to actually so, so strongly and vociferously stand against what is happening. So I don't think the, the answer is not in at all. That's, that's really what this book is about. You know, I mean, um, I think you've read enough of it to, to know I have as many questions in the book as I have answers. I actually think to, to, to find out what the questions are, uh, just like you were asking, that that's really what the political imagination that we need is, to not, to not think that we know exactly um, where we are going, but we know that we are going forward. And I, I do think that, um, that just a whole series of, 
of events, everything from um, the Me Too movement um, to the, uh, the unbelievable attack against abortion rights, the, I think, a kind of recognition by most people that sexual violence, sexual predation, um, that it is at the core of our society and world, whether it's war rape, whether it is uh, sexual harassment on the job. I mean, the other major contribution to political thinking that I'm trying to share in the book is to say that sexual violation is at the core of politics and that it forms a kind of glue for capitalism and that the the unwillingness to recognize the politics of sexual violence will, um, if we don't recognize it, we definitely will not be able to make Trump sorry. If you, I'm using that as a metaphor, right? You know, you uh, then ask, I, you also ask many yeah. questions of the left, inquiring why am I still forced to be making this case oh, after yeah. all the years <laughs> of anti-racist, anti-misogynist critiques of capitalist, racist, heteropatriarchy? Why is this still the question? Why haven't progressive thinkers and activists of all stripes changed more? Why does the left fail to recognize that the uh, personal is political? That there is a politics to sex? That sexualized racism is foundational for class? To you, what explains the left's inability or unwillingness to change or to challenge racial racist misogyny? And I know that there are more options of the, than just the two I'm going to offer. But which do you think it is more, an unwillingness to challenge racist misogyny or the left simply isn't able, doesn't have the strategies, doesn't know how to challenge racist misogyny? Well, I think maybe it's, you know, a bit of both. Also, I don't want to beat up on the left here. I mean, the, you know, the the point is is that this particular um recognition of the coherence here of of uh, racist misogyny and the fact that you can't separate race racism from misogyny. You just can't, but everybody does. So, I mean, even when people talk about slavery, they talk about it as a racist system, but it's rooted. I mean, the very core of slavery, chattel slavery, was in the rape of enslaved black women. You know, it was a sexual and economic system. So, the, you know, the, the, why, why is that? You know, why is it that people right now, today, were saying that Bernie Sanders is the absolute answer because capitalism is the problem? Well, I do think capitalism is part of the problem. You write but that... You also, yeah. you also write that I'm a white woman who benefits from a structural system of white supremacy and privilege, but also suffers its misogynist roots and roots. How far can recognizing white privilege by whites undermine white supremacy? Is white supremacy's future more than anybody in white people's hands? Well, I think that... Um, it's a structural system that doesn't, you can't be reduced to individual anything, white people or not, but is it 
true that white people um, and white women in terms of the election of, of Trump, that disproportionate numbers of, of white women voted for Trump? Um, yeah. So, I mean, pe- when people say, how is that possible? He's such a misogynist. How could they vote for him? Well, you would have to understand that white privilege is also part of what? Misogyny. So, I mean, they were voting as much for the, whatever level of privilege or positioning they have. Um, many of those white women suffer misogyny all the time. Um, but they they don't suffer their whiteness, right? right? So I mean the I think it's I mean I also don't in any way want to um, speak about this as though I think it is easily unwrapped. I mean I think it works so brilliantly to protect the system because it is wrapped on all different levels. But one of the things I was doing today was. Um, finishing up a letter for white women to sign um, as a statement standing against the silent privileging that any white person benefits from in our society um, as a result of um, the what initiated the letter that uh, that uh, you know that we're actually going to publish in the next couple of days is the um, when when they see us. Have you watched the Ava DuVernay series no. about the um, Central Park Five? Uh, no, I haven't, but I'm aware of it. Yeah. Okay. So, but it's two white women as prosecutors who are really exposed as just being enormously um significant in the just incredible misjustice of the moment and um as as a white woman it just seemed to me that again the 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 ex, the silencing and exposure of what happened to five innocent black boys because of a rape of a white woman um, and the ease which with racism was deployed um, the, the the just the complications of that kind of existence in our society on a daily basis um, you know, we see it in all different kinds of forms. So, I mean, what I was just trying to say, though, is that in this particular moment, with a uh, an openly racist president, it just seems to me that all white people have more responsibility to speak against the system of white supremacy, no matter what that means. You write that the midterms were all about Trump in 2018. The 2018 election became a referendum that demanded a win for the Democrats, no matter how many differences one had with the Dems, no matter how much wondered if getting out the vote was enough or could work. Most people who were part of the resistance to Trump had little choice. But was it enough? In 2020, is the strategy of 
anybody but Trump enough? And does anybody but Trump lead to selecting who you believe is most electable and is who you believe is most electable the best way to select who you will support? So is that's why I'm, con- I'm concerned about any time anybody has the strategy of in 2004 with John Kerry, anybody but Bush. Is anybody but Trump enough? No, no. I mean, I, it's it's not enough. Um, although it, it's enough on the day of the election, but right now, now it needs to be somebody who has a a a um, equally radical progressive set of policies. That's that's who I do believe um, can win against Trump. But, I mean, somebody like a Biden, Trump will win. And that's pretty frightening. And I keep trying to tell everybody I know who's supporting Joe Biden that that's a very frightening choice to make. Uh, You write maybe some of the new radical women of color among the Democrats like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Ayanna Presley will initiate revolutionary reforms like abolishing the Electoral College along with the present representational structure of the Senate. Both are rooted in... the needs of chattel slavery. How are the Electoral College and Senate rooted in chattel slavery? And does that make the Electoral College and the Senate foundational cornerstones for white supremacy and institutional racism in the United States? Are the Electoral College and the Senate clear and obvious and open forms of institutional racism, in your opinion? Yeah, they are. I mean, I, you know, I'm a political scientist. I've taught the electoral, or tried to teach the electoral college, you know, and, um, for, you know, for years that I, you know, I just wish I had the clarity that I have now to, I mean, it, it was, it was just the, it, it was the, the give to Southern states, the electoral college to make up for the fact that they were less populated, et cetera. It was to give them equal power. It was the slave states who were demanding that. That's what the Electoral College were left with that. We are, you know, to talk about the, the, you know, history being present. You know, the history here is not really history. It's the present as well. So the Electoral College, all the gerrymandering, all of this is, it is constructed in such a way that makes it very difficult to, um, be able to to move forward, you know, in a in a a really um, effective political with a an effective political strategy. Um, but the you know the the issue here of having the popular vote. I mean, Trump didn't win the popular vote. He 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 you know he constructed his win with the electoral college. So, of course, anybody is able to to try to do that. But my point is, um, if we really, you know, reparations, you know, right along with reparations, you need to get rid of the Electoral College and you really need a, a, a new under, you know, a new construction as well, even a, a, about the relationship of the government structure, Senate, House of Representatives, etc. It's all rooted in the history of slavery, chattel slavery. 
It's not gone. You make this amazing point. You write, nevertheless, educated suburban women appear to have moved towards the Democrats in many of the 2018 midterm elections. Educated in suburban as a description of women is shorthand for middle and upper middle class white women. So maybe it is possible that class and gender will combine in this particular scenario to create a vote against Trump and inadvertently a vote against racism in 2020. Why do you say inadvertently? Do you believe women who do enjoy their white privilege, who do, uh, they profit, they benefit from white uh, supremacy, are opposing Trump? Is hating Trump more powerful than even defending your white privilege and embracing your white supremacy? Well, I mean, again, I, you know, I just don't think that, that when when we have multiple identities and multiple, um, you know, kind of uh, overlaps with different interests, um, I don't. I don't think that they always are separable and 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 able to, you know, clarify exactly which is the dominant force at any particular moment. But I do. I do think that the. Um, more and more because of the exposure right now uh, around uh, the issues of sexual violence, the whole question about reproductive rights. I mean, I do think that um, women of all colors have different um, capacity to understand their interests, even when they will be somewhat conflictual internally. So I, I mean, I am very hopeful that the different political struggles that are going on right now, and and you know, all different kinds of feminist um, activism that is going on right now, that that will mean that uh, Trump will not be elected again. But there's just so uh, the forces um, protecting him and supporting him are enormous. We have been speaking with activist, political scholar and feminist writer Zila Eisenstein. She is author of Abolitionist Socialist Feminism, Radicalizing the Next Revolution. And as Zila was saying, and as I hope I was pointing out throughout the interview, it's an amazing exploration of just thinking about yourself, thinking about the way where you are positioned in the world. It's great because, as Zila points out, it's the power of doubt and the power of not knowing necessarily what direction the revolution is going to go. And Zila is Distinguished Scholar of Anti-Racist Feminist Political Theory at Ithaca College in New York. You can find out more about her at zilaeisenstein.wordpress.com, and you can follow her on Twitter at Z Eisenstein. Zila, for all of our guests, we our final question is always what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. You might hate to answer or our audience might hate your response. You advocate listening to and thinking with women of color very carefully. If I do not feel unsettled, I am not listening. If I am not destabilized about my place in the scheme of things, I'm not doing the work. Never think that color does not matter. Never be afraid or believe that you cannot stand against injustice. Absolutely do not remain silent because you are frightened to make a mistake. Risk everything and the support you need comes forth. 
Is the goal then for all white people to challenge their own power, to have a revolution, to overthrow their own white privilege and supremacy? Is the reason white supremacy and privilege are so intact that it means white people voluntarily giving up their their power and their advantages? Well, I don't think usually power is given up voluntarily. That's why revolutions are needed. (laughs) So, um, I mean, I I used to argue in my classroom that if you're ever given something, know that what you just got wasn't power, that it always entails a struggle. But what I am asking for is... um, for uh, for white people to become participant in a revolutionary struggle, um, in and that their their location afterwards will be different, and that the whole panoply of what uh, what humanity feels like, and and what decency feels like, and what justice feels like will be different, but you can't be scared that you might not like it. <laughs> Zila, I really appreciate you being on our show this week. This is a fascinating book, and anybody who is listening to the show right now, you should pick up Zila Eisenstein's new book. It really is fascinating. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Oh, thanks so much, really. All right, take care, Zila. Yes, good night. This is hell where we put people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. Inmates in U.S. prisons are experiencing maddening solitary confinement where they experience a complete lack of human contact while being in a tiny cell that takes every, everything from them, even at times their sanity, to protest such cruel and unusual punishment. Solitary prisoners often go on food strikes, hunger strikes, as it is the only power they have. We'll learn all about the horrors of solitary when we talk in a few minutes to investigative journalist Aviva Stahl, author of The Nation Investigation, Force Feeding is Cruel, Painful, and Degrading, and American Prisons Won't Stop. Find out more about Aviva at Stolidarity.com. Her name is Aviva Stahl, so she has the awesome website of Stolidarity.com. That's S-T-A-H-L-Idarity. Speaking of our horrible business model where we stupidly put people before profits on Patreon this week, well, we did this, what you're listening to right now. And as a Patreon subscriber, you got to hear this as a live stream during the week. However, if you are not a subscriber at patreon.com slash this is hell, then you are probably listening to the world broadcast premiere. I love saying that world broadcast premiere of this live recording being played Saturday morning on WNUR Chicago Sound Experiment. Or you're listening to the podcast of this week's show that we posted after our over the air broadcast. Either way, if you want to make certain that you catch this is hell live every week as it happens, you have to subscribe via Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell special thanks. Thanks this week for joining us on Patreon goes to Samuel, Keegan, Barry, and Shaw. Thanks for joining us on Patreon this week. Become a This Is Hell subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell and every week get exclusive contact content only for subscribers. That includes access to live streaming content. When we pre-record the show for broadcast on 
on WNUR on Saturdays when I'm out of town, as well as new monologues for me, classic interviews that you can't get anywhere else, and more, including rare, rare interviews that Alex and Richard have found in our 23-year catalog archive of shows. That's This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. Let's get back to some more listener feedback. As I said earlier this week, we are still taking submissions and suggestions for artists and musicians to participate and get paid for doing so in our upcoming fourth annual 20th anniversary and listener appreciation party and art opening and uh, show exclusively featuring art and music either by our listeners or artists and musicians that they have suggested. All you have to do is send your art or music or art or music you would like to have featured at our party to chuck at thisishell.com and we will consider your suggestion. Earlier I was saying how an artist suggested for the This Is Art show happening at the party is actually a labor historian and she was recently interviewed in Jacobin about the Portuguese Revolution which is apparently her expertise and I was saying how that was what is quintessential quintessential This Is Hell synchronicity but there's even more This Is Hell synchronicity and the artist suggested by our listeners on our last show Simone suggested we present the art of Jessica Buttermore in the show and apparently Jessica heard that and writes Chuck I've been outed publicly on your radio show as an artist i was very surprised to hear my name pronounced in the listener feedback section of y'all's last live show my friend simone recommended me for the upcoming this is art show well damn now that i've been outed i guess i should respond i've attached my most recent collection of creepy valentines i guess i don't really consider them art or myself an artist because to me they're just creepy valentines and i'm just a maker of creepy valentines but you can judge for yourself if you would like them in the show i would be extremely honored and happy to deliver them to chicago myself uh, they are easy to transport just seven and a half by seven and a half inches on paper enjoy so a listener suggested an artist for the show who is a listener who heard their name on air got outed as an artist and is someone who has been at our last Two, maybe three anniversary parties, maybe all four. I, I don't know. All the way from Memphis. Jessica's come all the way from Memphis and has won prizes during the raffles at each of our parties. So that's the weird kismet. That is the weird synchronicity. We constantly are stumbling across here on This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Coming up on this week's show, we'll discuss force-feeding prisoners in the U.S., which is far more disgusting than you can ever imagine. Prisoners who are protesting their treatment in solitary confinement, a protest that happens way more than you think. And Jeff Dorchin has a moment of truth. This week, Jeff thinks about artificial intelligence and how stupid it is. We'll also keep reminding you about our upcoming annual party, and we're gonna make sh- and we want to make sure that it's in your calendar. We want to thank some listeners for sharing the show online, others for uh, supporting the show at thisishell.com when clicking on support, and we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. Prisoners in the U.S. who are completely cut off from all human contact for long stretches of time have little recourse in addressing their cruel and unusual conditions in confinement, so they often resort to the only thing they still have any control over, still have any power over in their lives, 
and that's their physical body. By going on hunger strikes, they use the only tool they have in hopes to improving their conditions, which leads to disgusting practice of force-feeding inmates. Here to reveal to us of so much of what is wrong with American prisons, investigative journalist Aviva Stahl is author of the Nation article and investigation. Force-feeding is cruel, painful, and degrading, and American prisons won't stop. Welcome to This Is Hell, Aviva. Thank you so much for having me. Aviva's writing covers criminal justice, transphobia, and Islamophobia. You can follow Aviva on Twitter at Stolidarity, which is awesome. Find out more about Aviva at Stolidarity.com. You know, I have a whole bunch of questions listed here, but the first question I guess I want to ask, and I just was thinking of it while I was reading your intro, is how unique is this type of force feeding practice here in the United States to break prisoners of their protest against their conditions in confinement? Do other nations do this? Is it only the United States? Who else does this? I think in the United States, the truth is that we don't actually know much about how frequently it's conducted. Uh, there were some, there are people who went on hunger strike and ice detention about six months ago, last winter, who were force fed from detainees. What really interested me about my story in particular was the fact that people were going on hunger strike at the same time that they were prohibited from communicating with the press or the public. So usually hunger strikes rely on like media attention and public action to, to sort of oxygen to fuel their demands, to fuel their protests. And I was really kind of interested and confused and wondered what it was like to be on hunger strike when you don't have access to that. Right. And you, um, you point out that it was November 11th, 2015, and Mohammed Salama hadn't eaten in 34 days. A week earlier, Salama uh, failed to comply with the demand to eat, so guards had entered his cell, dragged him out. He didn't want to be manhandled again, so he slowly pulled himself to his feet. At his door, the force team attached irons to his legs and handcuffed him. They took him to the medical treatment room where a physician's assistant ran tests and weighed the five foot eight inch prisoner at 139 pounds. The assistant asked inmate Salama, will you drink this nutritional supplement voluntarily by mouth? He refused. It wasn't Salama's first time being forced fed. He'd been in that black chair nearly 200 times in the past 10 years after his conviction in 1994 on terrorism-related charges, he had been held in lower security facilities where life was tough but rarely so harsh that he felt he had to stop eating. After 9-11, though, he was transferred, and by 2002, he was placed for the first time in the highest security unit of the highest security prison in the country. That's known as the H unit at Florence ADX at the United States Penitentiary Administration Facility, maximum facility in Florence, Colorado. What changed when he got to ADX at Florence? And why did they think it was so important to transfer him to ADX at Florence? I think that's a big question mark and part of the reason that these communication restrictions that prevented him from speaking to the press and the public, which are called special administrative measures or SAMs, one of the reasons that they're so concerning. So essentially between the time of the conviction in 1994 and 2001, he was never held in the supermax because he wasn't perceived as a threat to the public. And then after 9-11, he, a, a bunch, with, along with a bunch of other high-profile terrorism, got men convicted of high-profile terrorism offenses were transferred. Um, and they weren't given any explanation. It, it wasn't as though there was a specific incident that triggered it. And then in 2005, he ended up on H-Unit. And 
yeah, I was just given a piece of paper saying the justification was this crime of conviction, which had happened 12 years earlier. And beyond that, he had no idea what, had, what he had done or what was alleged to have ended him up in this situation. It's just astonishing. You write that there are only about a dozen people in the H unit at any given time, but they may be subject to the most extreme conditions of long-term isolation of any jail or prison in the United States. It was in H units that Salama began going on repeated sustained hunger strikes to demand more humane conditions of confinement. What were the extreme conditions that he faced that are not typical of solitary confinement? And were these new conditions that were invented, created post 9-11? So SAMs were created in 96, but their use uh, greatly accelerated after 9-11, and also the rules became more relaxed, so it was easier to keep people on them for longer. So SAMs vary from prisoner to prisoner, but I'll tell you a little bit about what Mr. Salama's conditions looked like. Um, When he was first put on them in 2005, he was only permitted to speak to his immediate family members, so his parents and his siblings and his attorney. Um, and those individuals were also prohibited from repeating anything that Mr. Salama had said. So that could be what he had for breakfast, or it could be the brutal treatment he received when he was forced eating. So all of the people who knew what was happening to him could be criminally prosecuted for telling a reporter or the public what had happened. In addition to those restrictions, he was subject to a whole, whole, whole host of other restrictions involving what he could read. So, for example, he could only read newspapers that were 30 days old or older. He couldn't get uh, magazines. He couldn't read The Nation, which is where my story was printed. He couldn't get books. One prisoner on each unit was actually denied Obama's memoir on national security grounds. And on top of that, um, the prisoners are prohibited from speaking to each other. And they're also prohibited from reaching out to lawyers on their own to ask for defense. So if they want to you know, bring a lawsuit to protest their conditions of confinement, even that is quite difficult. Back in 2012, in an article published by the American Psychological Association, they quoted a psychologist, Craig Haney, telling the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on the Constitution, Civil Rights, and Human Rights that the nation's roughly 80,000 inmates in solitary confinement at the time were, quote, at grave risk of psychological harm. The conditions of confinement are far too severe to serve any kind of penological purpose as a result of the endless monotony and lack of human contact. Dr. Haney said that for some prisoners, solitary confinement precipitates a descent into madness. The story reports Harvey explaining that inmates can experience panic attacks, depression, paranoia, suffer hallucinations. Such long-term effects are common. This was in 2012, and we still don't view solitary confinement as unconstitutional and illegal, being that it is obviously, it seems from this report, from this testimony from an expert, is obviously cruel and unusual punishment. Unfortunately, it's actually not that unusual because you point out that it isn't. To you, what explains the fact that we know, we are certain, solitary confinement has the risk of having permanent antisocials and sociopathic effects on your psychological well-being, yet allowing it to continue legally. What does that say to you about American society? Does it say we just don't have the power to reform our prisons, or does it say something more about us? I think it says that we do everything we can to dehumanize prisoners and to make it seem as though they're inherently different than us uh, because of our crime of conviction or because of something we might have done on the inside. Even with my story, Mr. Salama was convicted of a high-level terrorism offense, 
And in many press interviews and just talking to people casually about the story, a lot of people say, ah, well, I mean, he's a terrorist. Like, who cares what's happening to him? And I think that really indicates how um, accepted it is to dehumanize some people who are on the inside just because of one thing they've done or how we perceive them to be. Don't prisoners, though, I know this is not the case. I'm trying to play devil's advocate. The show's name, This Is Hell, after all. Uh, don't prisoners lose all of their rights as human beings once they get into prison? Well, they definitely don't lose all their constitutional rights. And I don't think they lose, they don't lose their human rights in the sort of international law sense of the word. Um, and when it comes to sports feeding, I mean, sports feeding, both the international, both the World Medical Association and the American Medical Association say that it's unethical for doctors to participate in sports feedings if the prisoner is found to be mentally competent. And it doesn't matter if the prisoner is on the verge of death or anything else. If the prisoner is mentally competent, it's wrong to force feed them. And when it comes to sports feeding and how it was conducted at ADX, especially with Mr. Salama, Experts I spoke to said that also amounts to torture in some circumstances. So I think, yeah, I think it, there are issues, legal issues at stake here. It's just that it's really hard to defend the rights of prisoners in our country. So if it's unethical and it sounds like it violates the Hippocratic Oath, how can they get any physicians whatsoever to apply to force feed inmates? How can this actually be happening if it has been determined to be an unethical medical practice? I think it's in part a quirk of like the American system. So licensing boards are separate from American, like the American Medical Association is a professional organization, but they don't actually give people licenses. The same is true of the fact that doctors participate in executions, which I mean are obviously contrary to Hippocratic Oath. It's interesting because in Israel, there was a long legal battle, legal battle to legalize force feeding. It was banned for a long time after some Palestinian prisoners died being force fed. And then I think in 2015, perhaps, um, a law was passed and approved by the high court allowing the Israeli authorities to force feed Palestinian detainees. But the Israeli Medical Association prohibited all of their physicians from participating. And so from my understanding now, if the Israeli authorities want to force feed Palestinian detainees, they have to import physicians to do that. We, we've known for a very long time that solitary and force feeding are br- brutal, cruel, and unusual punishments, yet they continue. Are solitary and force feeding happening because prisons have done such a good job of censoring inmate speech? Is that lack of transparency the only reason that force feeding and solitary, solitary confinement continues? The relationship is more complicated than that. I mean, if you look at other hunger strikes that have happened, for example, in California in 2013, you know, something like 20,000 prisoners went on hunger strike, went, went on hunger strike and protest in large part of solitary confinement, of extended solitary confinement. And they got a ton of press coverage and actually won some substantial uh, concessions from the California prison authorities. And nobody was forced fed in that context. I think certainly um, on HGNIT, the fact that People are being force fed, you know, Mr. Salama in 2006, I think it was, he was force fed a gallon of nutritional supplement in one sitting. That's like 16 cartons he was fed and he vomited them all up and he, he was fed one by one and vomited it all up for, for like an hour and a half. I think the fact that something like that could happen 
and nobody could report on it, that he could spend 11 years in total without the pressure of the public finding out anything that was happening to him. I mean, I certainly think that's a reason why things on each unit are as they are. You write that I started reporting the story because I wanted to know how the Federal Bureau of Prisons operates when it is unshackled from the fear of public scrutiny from oversight. Since it's impossible for anyone to report on what's hap- currently happening in each unit, I spent 18 months interviewing men held there in the past as recently as 2015 alongside defense attorneys and physicians with the uh, expertise in force feeding. I just want to make sure that we stress and make sure and make certain that everybody understands the level or the lack of oversight here when it comes to U.S. prisons. How little oversight is there of the treatment of prisoners in U.S. prisons? I think, I mean, very little for sure. I mean, on a federal level, the Bureau of Prisons are kind of notorious. We have no oversight because Congress is technically who oversees the BOP, but I mean, Congress isn't doing much of anything, and they're certainly not overseeing uh, prisons. I think on like a state and local level, it really varies widely based on where you are and what the particular local politics are there. So, for example, I live in New York City, and there's a really vibrant local activist scene that debates and pushes on conditions in Rikers. So I think it really varies. But when it comes to H-Unit, uh, one interesting thing I learned during my time reporting this story is that there's greater transparency when it comes to conditions at Guantanamo than there is conditions on each unit. And I think that really speaks to the extent to which the American population has sort of accepted that to some extent, like, we're okay with not knowing what's happening on the inside, or, you know, that's something we're willing to sacrifice or give away in the name of national security. Even if we aren't told why we need it, we'll just accept we need it and take that for face value. Well, so uh, just following up on that, what impact do you think the existence of Guantanamo as it was operated following 9-11, what impact do you think that that has had on the overall view that Americans have of U.S. prisons and the way that they should treat prisoners? I think it's really skewed our understanding of um, kind of the relationship between atrocities and detention facilities and atrocities on the inside. I think we can sort of see that today, too, the whole debate about whether immigration detention facilities or concentration camps sort of is important, but also ignores the really long legacies of, you know, people dying in detention and prisons in the U.S. And in the same way, you know, there's a long history of hunger strikes and forced feedings in American prisons. And actually, like, the people who performed the forced feedings at Guantanamo had people travel from ADX to help train them to do it. Almost definitely people from H-Unit, medical providers from H-Unit. And they even taught them how to use the forced feeding chairs. So those practices were, like, quite literally imported to Guantanamo from the American prison system. I think that really indicates that we sort of see Guantanamo as this outlier, but actually it's just an extension of what we've been doing to incarcerated people for a long time. That is just frightening as hell. When you spoke to men held in H-Unit, how forthcoming were they? Did they have concerns about being punished for saying the wrong thing for, you know, or saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing? When speaking to the formerly held in solitary and force-fed, did they have or did you recognize any kind of characteristics that suggested the more long-term impact of their treatment during incarceration? So let me just ask the first question first. That is, again, how forthcoming were they? 
It varied. I mean, Mr. Salama very graciously was totally willing to speak to me about everything. My, my main source in the story and, you know, was willing to sign papers so I could get his full medical record and all of his kind of official complaints that he'd lodged during his time on each unit. I spoke to, I think, five or six others who were all a lot less forthcoming to various degrees. I think the biggest concern is just that when it comes to these communication restrictions to SAMs, they don't ever really find out what triggered him being put on the SAM, and they don't ever really know what why they were taken off them either. Just, you know, they get every year if you're on SAMs, you get a renewal letter, and then one year they just stop driving, you know, for all of these guys. And so for that reason, when there's, it's so opaque, the process, everyone's extremely afraid to somehow trip the wire again. And that makes people really reluctant to speak honestly about their experiences. So did they have, did you recognize any characteristics that suggested to you the more long-term impact of their treatment during incarceration? I know you're not a psychiatrist or a psychoanalyst mm-hmm. in any way, but were, did you see any obvious signs that there had been a long-term impact on their solitary confinement and force feeding? Um, I think, I'm not sure. I think the things that have really stuck with me have mostly been the way that some of the men spoke about the nightmares they'd have about their time on each unit, the nightmares they'd have about being forced fed. And it really just kind of struck me that more than one person talked about that. Um, that years later, they still woke up to that in the middle of the night. And a part of them could be still sort of trapped in that moment or trapped in that place. You write that the Department of Justice has never disclosed what criteria it uses to evaluate risk that leads to inmates being in solitary confinement in the H unit. From your research, do you believe there is any criteria? Did you find commonalities among those who are put in special administrative measures? Well, one of the difficult things is we don't, it's not as though we have like a list of who gets on SAMs or who has been on SAMs. So mostly it's just uh, researchers and reporters compiling names through their own networks of who they know. Um, it's really hard to say. I don't think, um, I'm not sure if there's any criteria. I think there are definitely people who um, are put on SAMs pre-trial, so before they're even ever convicted of a crime, in which it appears as though the SAMs were put on in order to push the person either to take a plea or to divulge information that they're perceived to have. Um, and in the post-trial context, I'm not sure. I, I know there was some press coverage around Mr. Salama right before he got placed on SAM, so maybe it was done in response to that to make it look like the BOP was taking things seriously, but it's just it's really hard to tell. You point out that for this reason that I didn't ask uh, Salama to tell you didn't you didn't ask Salama to tell you about his crimes. You write the harm he caused should not be forgotten, but it must be held apart. Under international law, the right to be free from torture is inalienable and absolute, and that protects all of us. What would you say to someone who argues that if we don't know the crime, then we don't know if the punishment fits the crime? If we don't know. Mm-hmm. So so what is wrong with that kind of thinking of, hey, you know, well, I'm not going to consider what Salama went through uh, until I know what crime he committed. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned what he was convicted of. I just don't go into any detail or I didn't ask him to explain why he'd done it or whether he regretted it or ask him to make some sort of 
apology, I guess. And I think the reason I, I what I would say to those people is that um, what I sort of set up at the very end of that paragraph, which is I think that for human rights to protect anyone, they need to protect everyone. And regardless of what he did and regardless of how many years he was sentenced to, which is life without parole, that doesn't mean that he should be allowed to be subject to conditions that amount to torture under our legal system or under international law. And the moment we start deciding um, these people deserve human rights and these people don't deserve human rights, it's a really slippery slope uh, to a place I don't think any of us want to be in. Um, I think that it's really easy to decide in the hardest of cases. It's easier for some people to say in the hardest of cases, oh, this extreme person who kills people, yeah, we won't give them human rights. But those are actually the cases where it's most important that we hold a like really strong line and say, no, everyone is deserving of human rights, regardless of what they've done or regardless of what moral worth we perceive them to have. You point out it. I'm sorry, I just jumped to one more question. You write that on Salama's telling, it was the communication restrictions, not his three years under the extreme isolation, that drove him to stop eating. In March 2005, without explanation, a group of guards took him to H unit and handed him the gags he would live under for 11 years. Aside from his attorney, Salama could communicate only with his parents and siblings. He would he could make one phone call each month send one three-page double-sided letter each week. The FBI monitored everything. He was barred from TV and radio, and reading material had to be individually approved. You quote Salama saying that the Bureau of Prisons, quote, should call them punishment or torture, not special administrative uh, measures like it's something nice. They are all really devastating. Is there a legal definition of torture, and does this fall under it does force feeding in solitary confinement when it comes to international criteria for what torture is does this fall within that definition sort of a complicated issue that's not entirely settled uh the u.n special officer on torture a few years ago said that solitary confinement beyond 15 days at the very least amounts to uh cruel unusual and degrading punishment which is sort of a lesser form of torture um and when it comes to force feeding, it seems like pretty much all force feedings, if you're restrained, like Mr. Salama was on each unit, they also are not to cruel, unusual, integrating punishment. And then for it to rise from cruel, unusual, integrating punishment to torture, there has to be a level of intent involved. Not just we treated this person really badly, but we did that with the intent to cause them harm, to cause them to suffer. And it definitely seems like some of the force feedings that Mr. Salama experienced were done with the intent to cause them harm. And in that sense, they do fall under the legal definition of torture. You write that the Bureau of Prisons moved to create SAMs, these special administrative measures, in 1996, shortly after the Oklahoma City bombing. And at that time, right after the Oklahoma City bombing, our show had just started, and we were talking to people about how many new terror laws the Clinton administration was putting into place. You continue, the regulations give the Attorney General, then Janet Reno, discretion to impose the measures if he or she believes there's a substantial risk that an inmate's communication could pose a public threat. The regulations do not require the attorney general to consult a judge, and the attorney general usually justifies the measures on the basis of the inmate's conviction, which in Salama's case occurred more than a decade earlier. So is the Clinton administration responsible for solitary and force feeding of prisoners, which are seen as violations of international law? And if so, why did they do it? Why did the Clinton administration employ such a policy? Were there 
any cases of inmates posing a public threat about uh, from behind bars? Does you know? So why did they? If if it is the Clinton administration's fault, why did they do it? Well, I don't really know. I don't actually. I didn't research a ton into the kind of internal debate within the Clinton administration or the legislature or Congress about why these specific regulations were promulgated. But I do know that the first person to be put on SAMS was a gang leader who had allegedly been ordering hits from his prison cell. And that's kind of what the measures were designed for, at least on their face, was that someone was using their communication with the outside world to actually put the public in danger in tangible, very material ways. Um, I think it definitely seems like after 9-11, they were used much more widely, including under the Obama administration. Um, and that's concerning. I don't know. Uh, you write that after 9-11, the Department of Justice changed the rules to allow for harsher restrictions and less oversight. Number of prisoners under SAMS began to multiply from 16 in November 2001 to 30 in 2009 to 51 in June 2017. Vast majority of these individuals have been Muslim, according to a 2017 report issued by Yale Law School and the Center for Constitutional Rights, which states it appears that a major criterion for deciding whom to place under SAMS was not the person's demonstrated capacity to communicate dangerous information, but rather the prisoner's religion. Is force-feeding, is solitary confinement, is this the criminalization of Islam? Uh, definitely to some degree. I mean, I think Asian is a really particular example, but if you look at the U.S. overall, it's definitely people of color primarily who end up in solitary. Um, I know in New York State, for example, black people are much more likely to get thrown in the box, largely, I think, because the guards upstate in New York facilities are white and uh, punish black prisoners to a much greater degree than white prisoners. Um, I think... It's definitely true that Muslim prisoners are more likely to be subject to SAMs and that we haven't really spent much time in the kind of journalism world of solitary confinement talking about how Muslims have been affected by solitary confinement and SAMs. Um, I think Mr. Salama, who I, I mean, I will disclose his crime of conviction, which he was uh, convicted of participating in the 93 World Trade Center attack. I think it's really easy for people to kind of decide just from that that he poses a danger but actually, we need real, measurable, tangible, quantifiable ways that the public can evaluate to decide who really poses a danger and who, who doesn't. Did hunger strikes ever lead to Salama getting concessions from the prison? Can hunger strikes work? Uh, definitely. I mean, I think it also wasn't just him. The largest uh, hunger strike that I heard about at, um, H -Unit, on H-Unit was in 2009, and I think the majority of the men on HUNF participated in the hunger strike at that time. And from what I understand, sometimes one person would start a hunger strike and then another guy would join in, not because they were coordinating necessarily, but just because they were all experiencing the same thing. They all felt equally uh, desperate and like they had no other options. They didn't know when they would get off them. Some people thought they were going to die on them. And so they felt like it was the only thing they could do to to show their despair and to demand something different. And they did win concessions. Um, some of the concessions they won include not having to wear their shackles during their non-contact visit. They got newspapers that were just a few days old instead of 30 days old. I think they got more phone calls. Um, there were also other concessions that 
I'm forgetting right now. But I remember that the reading material was really important to a lot of the guys. And you mentioned they even got a 12-inch black-and-white TV, so that's kind of another concession they got. You write, a hunger striker isn't suicidal, but is willing to risk his life for the sake of a cause. Why is it so important to make that distinction? It's important to make that distinction because if you see them as suicidal, then it's easier for you to be sort of tricked by this idea that the prison has a moral or ethical obligation to provide them with medical care. But uh, as, as the physician arranged with you told me, it's a political act. It's not a medical condition. It's not something that doctors have to respond to unless the prisoner wants medical care. Hunger um, strikes are an expression of political will, just like any other political act. And if we see them as otherwise, if we see them as like a, a medical need, uh, then we're not taking their action seriously. We're not taking their autonomy seriously. And we're also not taking seriously the fact that the American Medical Association says it's unethical to intervene if they ask not to. You write the men could go years without being touched by someone other than a guard. Besides the rare phone call and visit, months would pass by before they exchange more than a few words with another person. How am I supposed to live without speaking to another human being? Another former H-unit inmate, Uzer Parasha, told you during a phone call. Is the goal to punish through weaponizing psychological disorders? Are mental illnesses part of the punishment? I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, I know that Mr. Salama fared relatively well for someone who's been on the issue for a long time. I heard stories about men on there who were catatonic from being in isolation for so long. Um, I think that there's a degree to which these men have been considered, yeah, that they're being punished, they're being treated, they're being forced to suffer, they're being cut off from the outside world because they're perceived as subhuman. And it just assumes that the prison system is going to throw its whole weight into punishing them because of who they are and what they've done. You write that three times a week, a five-person force team amassed in front of Salama's cell, along with a lieutenant, a physician's assistant, two guards with cameras, and another carrying gear. Cameras. So that suggests that the Bureau of Prison Prisons has very detailed information about all these force feedings. Do you believe that they do have a lot of information, a lot of documentation, a lot of evidence about the force feedings that are going on, and they're simply keeping it from the public? Yeah. I mean, I know in the case of videos, I'm like just started litigating a case against the BOP because I asked them for copies of videos from Mr. Salama's course feeding and they denied them. So I'm hoping that I'll get them sometime in the near future. But I definitely think they have a lot more information about what's been happening that they just prefer not to release. Do you think it's only a matter of time before they become, are forced to become more transparent before somebody leaks internal documentation? I would like to believe so. I think that especially when it comes to age unit, it's so difficult to um, create public sympathy for people who are perceived as subhuman that it's, it's hard to imagine there being kind of a public push for that. But I do really hope that there is a awareness amongst Americans that that's where we need to start in demanding that, you know, in demanding that Mr. Salama, someone who's convicted of a terrorist attack, deserves basic human rights. I think that will change things for all people who are locked up in the U.S. You mentioned this. This is so horrible. You mentioned how Salama 
at one point was demanding more food rations. You then quote Salam as saying, I'm hunger striking for food. It's funny if you think about it. What does hunger striking for food tell you? What does it reveal to you about how justice is being fulfilled in prisons? a good question. Um, I think it tells us that um, agency and autonomy manifest in all kinds of ways. And that, especially in a place like each unit, the system is designed to beat people down and make them feel totally powerless. I mean, if you can't reach the press to the public, and if the few people you can contact, you are allowed to contact, you can't reach the press or speak to the others, others about you know, the public about your experiences, what, you know, Salama was firing, was filing a switch complaint or after complaint, after complaint to the BOP to ask them to improve things and nothing changed. I can't imagine what kind of hopelessness that would inspire, inspired me just to feel, I, I think I would feel totally defeated that you have no measures at your disposal to press for change. And I think the fact that you would go on a trick for more food just speaks to the fact that even in those situations, people find ways to show that they do have agency and they do have some degree of control over their destiny and they're willing to fight for what they think is right. We were just speaking with feminist author Zila Eisenstein, and I want to ask you a question that's kind of related to what she said. You write, since 9-11, journalists have been denied entry to the ADX facility in Florence, almost without exception, not even the UN special rapporteur on torture has been allowed in. When I was talking to Zila about any connection that there might be between the application, political application of uh, fear or the political application of shame, she said you have to remember that people who are in power cannot be shamed. They are just, they're just not, they're just never people who are shamed. They just continue to holding on their power, onto their power. Can the U.S. be shamed into treating prisoners better? I think so. I think that in some cases they have. I think in California there was some movement. I think on Rikers there have been some small changes. I think even the fact that we can talk about solitary confinement on this show as a, as a serious human rights issue, I mean, that wasn't something that the public was speaking about five or ten years ago. So I think we can. I think it's just a measure of how we do it. I mean, one issue that a lot of people have talked about a lot in the kind of solitary confinement world is that We've, we've talked about who we're going to save from solitary. Are we going to save the kids? Are we going to save the pregnant women? Are we going to save the people convicted of nonviolent drug offenses? What about the people convicted of murder? Do they deserve to be in solitary? Like, what about the terrorists? And I think it's a question of how we frame the fight um, to shame politicians in a way that um, means things can get better for everyone. I know that communication is limited, but the article was posted a week ago. Have you heard if Salama experienced any blowback from it, any punishment for speaking out? Well, I called her. He called me this morning, and I got to hear his reaction to the story for the first time. And he actually got a copy of the magazine itself, uh, which the nation very graciously sent to him. And he was really excited to see it. And so far, no, he hasn't gotten any blowback. He's thankfully been transfer to a prison in Kentucky. So he's far away from Colorado and from Florence, and I think that helps a lot. 
I've got one last question for you. We've been speaking with investigative journalist Aviva Stahl. She is author of the Nation article, Force Feeding is Cruel, Painful and Degrading, and American Prisons Won't Stop. Aviva's writing covers criminal justice, transphobia, and Islamophobia. Follow Aviva on Twitter at Stahlidarity, S-T-A-H-L-I-D-A-R-I-T-Y. Find out more about Aviva at Stahlidarity.com. One last question for you, Aviva, and as we do with each and every one of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You quote Salama saying that at ADX, the hunger strike is buried. Nobody will know about it. And that helps the government not to give up anything. You add that's largely because hunger strikes rely on the media to convey their concerns and the SAMs make that task all but impossible. In 2013, nearly 30,000 people incarcerated, as you were mentioning earlier, in California went on hunger strikes to protest long-term isolation. After about two months and extensive media coverage, they secured substantive policy changes. Could hunger strikes, do they have the potential to, if not take down the U.S., uh, prison system, at least can hunger strikes bring about the reforms that activists on the outside have been fighting for for years as the best strategy for political strategy for the prisoners to get their reforms, not anything that activists can do on the in- outside, but through their hunger strikes on the inside. I think hunger strikes, there's a long history of hunger strikes from the suffragettes, you know, in 1908, 1910, through you know, the IRA through till today, a really long history of prisoners using hunger strikes to fight for better conditions um, and to fight for basic human rights. I feel um, really privileged to have been able to tell a story about prisoners using their bodies to fight for better conditions. And I think it's always important for people on the outside to follow the leadership, um, the wisdom and the uh, bravery of people who are living in these conditions um, every day. And um, I really hope that if there is a hunger strike or a labor strike, as there has also been recently, that um, everybody listening to this show finds out what they can do um, to support. Aviva, thank you so much for being on our show. Aviva Stahl, investigative journalist. You can find out more about her at Stolidarity.com. Thank you so much, not only for just being on our show, but thank you so much for this work. This is really, really important work to finally tell people what's happening inside of prisons, because I know from people I know have been in prison how horrible it is. Thank you so much for being on the air with us. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. This is Hell, your home for futilitarian content. In just a few minutes, Jeff Dorchin has a moment of truth. And this week, Jeff thinks about artificial intelligence and how stupid it is. Let's go back to listener feedback for a moment. Travis, who last time told us we should get the artist Sean Lopez in our This Is Art show coming up on July 27th as part of our fourth annual 20th anniversary and listener appreciation party. So uh, Travis sent more work by Sean Lopez, and the images he sent are these cool, oversized, neon, screaming faces. But Travis didn't send any links, and I'm having trouble finding Sean's work online. So Travis, if you are listening, please send a link to Sean Lopez's work so we can see more of it, share it with everyone else, and potentially contact Sean to have him in our upcoming This Is Art show. Nick, who is a longtime listener of the show and will be hanging out with us at office hours today. 
immediately following our show starting at 9 o'clock. He offered his art for consideration in the upcoming This Is Art show. Nick is actually traveling from Denver to Wisconsin and is dropping by here just for office hour. Nick writes, I don't remember if I sent this to you during the school year, but here is my Kropotkin portrait in I'm telling you, it's stunning. I have more if needed and can make more portraits and such. I've got a Prince portrait that I can personally deliver as we drive from Denver to Wisconsin next week. We'll do everything I can to drop by for office hours. Hope your dental surgery went well and you feel better soon. Thanks, Nick. But the tooth pulling was awful. And then I threw my back out. So Nick's work is, like I was saying, stunning. And I'm looking forward to meeting him this week. If you... If any of you freaks are going to be coming here to the annual socialism conference here in Chicago during the July 4th weekend, drop by office hours then at Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon during office hours on Wednesday, July 3rd every year. Whole bunch of people from the Socialism Conference drop by during office hours, so it's your chance to meet other people who may be in town for the same reason that you are. We have, uh, let's see, I want to mention, yeah, I just want to read read this one real quick here, a uh, couple minutes here. So Brian, who helped us with fantastic artist suggestions last year, writes, "Hey, here's some great new artists you should check out." So I want to just share these with you, real quick, listeners. ScottCar.store, JakeSaunders.net. FlippyNapkins.com. Brian adds, I think I met this uh, person at Fireside where she was working. Lives in Chicago. Very cool. Bled the Buddha. You can find out more about Bled. uh, Brian says uh, he's a prolific Chicago street artist. He does a lot of subversive stuff on subway cars like replacing ads with his own pre-made inserts. That sounds amazing. He also mentions MikeMerg.Etsy.com. Girl Fox Pins and who Brian describes as a feminist pin designer. We're going to be contacting all the artists who have submitted their work or people have suggested their work for our show to see if we can start sharing some of those images on Instagram at This Is Hell. Dan wants us to consider his art for the show. Hey, Chuck, I'd love to be part of your annual This Is Art show. If it pleases the court, you may not have seen my work in a long time, so drop by dancandraw.com to see if I cut the mustard. Drop me a line with details so I can dive right in. You have to check out Dan's work at dancandraw.com. It is absolutely spectacular. Thanks, Dan. And I kind of don't know. He says at the end here, congrats on 23 years of squeezing poop to power. Keep on rocking in the free world. I don't know what squeezing poop to power means, but I also kind of like it as a new tagline for This Is Hell, squeezing poop to power since 1996. This Is Hell. And a regular listen and listener at This Is Hell, Eat Fart 69 is getting into the art scene too, or actually someone close to Eat Fart 69. Hi, Chuck. I was wondering if you are still accepting submissions to the art show. Please check out my website. I am Eat Farts 69's partner, and you can see Eat Fart 69's proud partner Hannah's work at hannahbearden.com but Hannah you got to tell us is Eat Fart 69's real name Alexandra also had a suggestion for our art show please take a look at the artwork by my friend Ink Sap he is a street artist out here in LA and I think he would be a good fit for the art show Uh, you can find more of his work if you just look up Ink Sap on Google remember none of the artists 
none, I'm sorry, none of the money made by the artists at This Is Art Show goes to This Is Hell or anybody but the artists. We take no commission. Nobody does. 100% of all money made goes directly to the artists themselves. So if you are an artist, this is a very rare opportunity. These commissions are usually 40 to 60%, which is freaking outrageous. If we still have time, we'll read some more of your listener feedback in a little bit. But I know that Alex has Jeffy on the line. One, two, you know what to do. We just need to know our limits. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. After decades of failing to perfect it, humans still can't admit that artificial intelligence is pretty stupid. Artificial intelligence is about as intelligent as artificial flowers are floral or artificial fruit is fruity. My favorite thing about humans trying to create artificial intelligence is our penchant for denial. We're great at denying that things are going terribly wrong. Witness our reaction to global warming. Have you seen HBO's Chernobyl? All the young Stal- all the young Stalinists, all the young Stalinists today are calling it anti-Soviet propaganda, as if propaganda were necessary to find a totalitarian thought-policing bureaucracy unpalatable. Anyway, whether it hews to reality or not, it's a great story of idiots in denial finally brought face to face with their hubris of thinking they can control technology. Now. I don't want to be a knee-jerk alarmist. People are so worried about artificial intelligence controlling us. I notice no one is worried about artificial legs walking all over us or dentures biting us to death. And listen, we're going to need artificial intelligence as our natural intelligence rots and falls off, which it seems to have been doing forever. You know who thought so? Seneca or Cicero, one of those bastards, Diogenes. But we must recognize when enough is sufficient. I saw a video of a robot being hit by humans with rods, wobbling a bit unsteadily, but regaining its stability, taking the rods away from its assailants, and then threatening to thrash them if they tried to attack again. One woman's comment to this video, can we stop being mean to robots? My comment, can we stop improving robots? Because people act like it's inevitable that robots are going to get more agile and effective. It's not inevitable. We can say, I don't want to live in that Black Mirror episode where the robot dogs hunt people down. Don't build those. It's not whether you can think your way out of the paper bag. It's with what style you get out of the paper bag and what origami shape you fold the leftover bag into. Wait, no, it's not. It's best to avoid getting trapped in the paper bag in the first place. Think about the Turing test. Just think about it. There, you've already done more than the Turing test requires from a computer. All the Turing test requires is that a person not be able to tell whether they're having a conversation with another person or with a computer. I think Turing would agree at this point that it's a stupid test. Writing a program that mimics one side of a conversation turns out to be a completely different effort from creating an artificial mind. Turing himself always suspected his friends of being elaborate computer simulations, so he wouldn't have been a reliable judge of the Turing test. The jury is still out on whether he would have been able to judge the Bechdel-Turing test, in which the point is to write a computer program able to convince a woman she's having a conversation with another woman about something besides a man. I have three points here. One, the ability to create an electronic mind that can do what the human mind does is beyond us. 
Two, our mediocre attempts to do so will produce nightmarish results, which our public policy authorities will deem acceptable. And three, we have the choice not to go down this pathway of doom into the black forest of monstrous horror. Point one, we can't even create an electronic chicken mind, let alone a human one. There's nothing sacred about the human mind that presents us. We, we simply don't know what a mind is. 10,000 years or so of hanging around with the current model, and we still can't describe it, where it comes from, what it does, and how it does it. We don't know where consciousness comes from. We don't know what dreams do or why we need them. When it comes to creating even a model of the mind, we're stupid, superstitious. We're superstitious primates making images of God out of mud so that's point one we don't really know why it's such a difficult thing to understand but it might have something to do with the fact that the thing we're using to try to understand it is the thing itself might not be the right tool for the job point two pretending our failure is success will lead to trouble Take facial recognition software. It has trouble doing its one job, recognizing faces, particularly those of non-white people. This leads to all kinds of problems, one of which is injustice. Now, for most of our history, our justice systems have led to injustice. They're very flawed. We know this. Yet we continue to be shocked when someone like Ava DuVernay illustrates the flaws of our justice system in a streaming docudrama. The only way bad artificial intelligence could make our justice system worse is by creating more injustice in it than we already currently tolerate. We can only foresee this. Artificial intelligence, or our version of it, which we can confidently call artificial stupidity, will lead to previously unimagined opportunities for new, more thrillingly Kafka-esque miscarriages of justice, resulting in people being imprisoned, made to suffer, and put to death in novel situations marked by capricious cyberpunk cruelty. Our time-honored tolerance for our own society's hypocrisy and inhumanity will really be put to the test. Point three. We have a choice. We think we don't, but we do. After centuries of coming up with new ideas to make money or profitable misery, we have come to assume that no one likes to put the genie back in the bottle or the toothpaste back in the tube. Look at the pretty genie, we say, or look at all the sparkly toothpaste. But recently, some lunatic in China used CRISPR gene editing technology to create genetically altered twin human beings, and the genie bottle rubbers stopped rubbing their genitalia long enough to say, whoa, not cool, dude. There was blanket medical and scientific condemnation from all around the world. I like to imagine that this is the first shove to move cap the capitalist reflex off its pedestal, the reflex of developing every technology as soon as it appears in the hopes of becoming the next rich person made of 99% perspiration. You know, people made of that much perspiration are bound to have some glandular issues. <clears throat> The recent recognition that some types of technology are too immoral to pursue makes me irrationally exuberant. Yeah, we don't need to capitalize on that new thing. It's going to put the wrong people in prison. It's going to put people out of work. It's going to destroy irreplaceable manifestations of non-human creativity, like forests and oceans. It's going to create unintended genetic defects in our experimental subjects, like turning them into 100% perspiration. So we are going to choose not to pursue that activity. We're going to consider the consequences before they happen, which is how we tell our children to approach things like drugs or potentially dangerous behavior. We will point... We, 
we will be able to point to concrete examples. Yes, kids will say, we split the atom because we could, we dropped the bomb, we nearly China syndromed an entire continent, but when it came time to make mutant children in a lab or robot policemen or robot witnesses or robot juries and judges, we used our common sense and said, no, we're not going to go there. We have more sense than that. Our lives are about more than finding the next iPhone. Our lives are worth more than someone else's ability to profit or some magical thinking about wealth concentration, improving the economy for everyone. We are the human species, and we will take control of our destiny to the best of our ability. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. I didn't like that qualifier at the end of the best of our ability. <laughs> a, little, a little bit concerned about that, my friend. How are you? Yeah, I don't blame you. <laughs> How you doing? Uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm I'm doing all right. Hey, I'm going to see you. Uh, I'm coming into town on July 12th for the Danny Thompson Memorial thing on July 13th. And, uh, uh, and I'm staying till the 15th, I guess. Hey, so I didn't know about this. What's going on with Dan? Is there a... Oh. Is, um, you know what? It might not be for public consumption. <laughs> oh, and I just said it over the radio. What an idiot. Uh, what are you going to do? Yeah, I think you have to be specifically invited. And I'm not sure. There's like there's still not an exact time and things are not quite in place. But uh, at any rate. But you'll be crashing at my place. Uh, yes, if I'm welcome, you bet I will. Of course you are. You're always welcome, sir. All right. I will see you then. Stay beautiful. You stay beautiful. Don't let them take any more of your teeth. You really can't spare them. I know, dude. I know it's getting really bad. It's getting really bad. All right. Thank you, sir. Take care. Bye. Live from land stolen from the natives, this is hell. The best way for you to get the word out about this is hell is to share the entire show or individual interviews or correspondence reports. This is hell has a very limited promotional budget, so we want to thank all of our listeners who share the show online. Thanks this week goes out to Todd, Jan, Astrid, Krimsky, Rich, Julie, Gorilla, Gramophonics, and the Alex, did you notice this? 467 shares of our uh, of our interview with Brian Muir on what's really happening in Brazil, which is easily a record number of shares for an interview within one week of being broadcast here on the show. Brian has been reporting on exactly what The Intercept revealed last week, that the Brazilian election was fixed and the U.S. corrupted the Brazilian justice system to do so. Brian's uh, been telling us that on our show for several years, so everyone wanted to hear that what Brian had to say, and uh, they shared the interview. So thanks for sharing goes to Julia, Aunt Anya, Lawrence, Libby, Mark, Denise, Jeffrey, Kenny with one N and an I, Kevin, Linda, Ian, Joseph, Marcy, Jonathan, Grace, Jason. Uh, all right, look, look, there's 467 names here. I'm not going to list them all. We also want to thank everybody who shared uh, my monologue about how Illinois' new recreational legal marijuana is not recreational or legal, and it's just a recriminalizing of marijuana, marijuana, including George, Nick, Todd, and Dan. And thanks to Jesse and Seamus for sharing our show as well. Thanks to everyone for sharing This Is Hell, however you share our show or any of its content. We really, really appreciate your support. Uh, I'm your bitter blind broke Gap Tooth Radio Show host Chuck Mertz producing this week's This Is Hell. Alex Jerry, Alex, what's happening on next week's live four-hour show broadcast from WNUR Chicago's Sound Experiment? Uh, I got a half booked. Uh, first up, Francis Ryan, journalist Francis Ryan, will be on to talk about her new book from Verso, "Crippled: Austerity and the Demonization of Disabled People." 
And then we are going to talk with D. Hunter about his book, Chav Solidarity, which I just started reading today. And uh, yeah, get ready for that one. It's going to be really good. Why does your mic sound significantly better all of a sudden? Does it? Yes. Did I you don't do know. something? No. I turned it on. Is that? <laughs> I don't know. I turned it on. Yeah, it does sound better. Uh, yes, that kind of training is what we give our producers here at This Is Hell, where the coolest musicians get their news. All right. I want to thank all of this week's guests. Thanks to uh, author of Repair Redeeming the Promise of Abolition, Catherine Frankie. That interview was absolutely spectacular. Her end, at least, not necessarily my end. So if you want to listen or hear about reparations in a really unique way, listen to our interview from earlier this week with Catherine Frankie. Also, thanks to Akemi Johnson, author of Night in the American Village, which is a stunning expose about what life is like in Okinawa, especially for the people of Okinawa who experience sexual violence at the hand, hands of U.S. service members. Also, thanks to Zila Eisenstein, author of Abolitionist Socialist Feminism, which sounds pretty freaking great, right? And thanks to investigative journalist Aviva Stahl, author of the Nation article, Force Feeding is Cruel, Painful, and Degrading, and American Prisons Won't Stop. Our hangover cure this week was the Dirty Waffle. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's This Is Hell. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, and focusing on that burning white dot in your middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh, my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.